Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is a very, very awesome engineer, producer, and mixer named Chris Baseford. He has worked with some of the top names in music, such as Nickelback, Molly Crew. Ever Levine, Shine Down, Rob Zombie, and a ton of other acts. He is truly an A-list level guy, and it was a great episode. He's got such a unique but practical perspective on this whole game of production and life. I think you're going to love this episode. I introduce you, Chris Baseford. Chris Baseford, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, COVID. <laughs> You were just saying that it's uh, wrecking your productivity. Yeah, I mean, we were we were just discussing, uh, you know, you see on Instagram or YouTube, this is going to be, for some people, the most productive time potentially of their lives where everything stopped and they've got nothing to do but do those things they've always wanted or maybe just really focus in on a forced focus on whatever you know they're currently working mm-hmm. on for me it, everything went to zero you know i had a, a sick wife who was locked in the bedroom she didn't have covid but you know, we were being super you know uh, cautious of that and so she was in you know self quarantine for 2 weeks and i've got a 4 month old baby girl and a 3 year old super high rpm boy and uh so my productivity absolutely stopped and for the first week i was trying to get i was like okay they're down for a nap i can run out to the studio and get some <laughs> stuff done like i've got a, my, my studios on my property in my backyard and so i'd run outside and you know bring the baby monitor and then like within fucking five minutes i was back and the only way for me to stay sane was to just admit that i'm gonna get zero done for until my wife is better and because I was going insane, just trying to like bounce back and forth, but it's kind of what happened. <laughs> I think when you accept reality, it makes it way easier to deal because then there's a finite amount of downtime. The quarantine that she's in wouldn't last forever, 14 days. Yeah. Uh, and then you can get your productivity back. I think that's better than just uh, fighting it yeah. um, because of the amount of anxiety that that causes. Like when I haven't been able to do things that I feel like I need to do for external reasons. Like, so uh, I'm very much the just 
get it done. It's all mindset kind of person. But in yeah. reality, there are some external factors that absolutely we have no control over. And sometimes they win. And I've always found that when that happens, like 2% of the time in life, when it's that, uh, it's best to just accept it and then try to understand what the timeline is or what you think the timeline is going to be and how to make the most of it when you can finally resume. It's... um. I've discovered just from working with various people and, and I'm very much like you. I mean, I've, I, I listen to the podcast and I hear you talk about like the various people that you follow and, you know, listen to audiobooks or read their books and stuff like that outside of the music sphere, just productivity guys and, you know, entrepreneurs. And, you know, I've, I've been in that mindset for a long time. I figured out not necessarily how to do it, but I figured out that it is a very fine art or science, whatever you want to call it, in deciphering the difference of I'm banging my head against a brick wall, I should probably stop, and I'm banging my head against a brick wall, and I got to keep banging my head against a brick wall because if I keep doing it, it's going to break down and I'm going to get through it. Being able to recognize the two scenarios, which are very different scenarios, I don't know a lot of people who can consistently do it, but the ones who can are like, you know, they're they're you know they're wizards. They're, I mean, they're, it, that that in itself is kind of like if there's one thing I could you know figure out and and be like, okay, I want to master that. It's 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 being able to recognize the difference between keep pushing and be like, okay, back off and wait so you don't smash your skull into a brick wall. I have a method for how to determine the difference because that's... I'd love to hear it. That's actually really crucial because you got to know when you're wasting... It's huge. Yeah, you got to know when you're wasting your time. Yeah. For me, and this is not scientific, so this kind of comes down... Maybe there's a way to metric it, but there's a feel. So basically, if it feels like you're swimming against the current with everything you do, you put in a ton of effort yeah, and the results don't match the effort relative to how long you've been doing it. Like for instance, I had a beard oil company yeah, and it, great branding, great marketing. The product was superior to uh, the other ones on the market. It was awesome. Yep. But we just could not get it off the ground. We tried for years and I just think that the market was not ready for it or didn't want it. And there's nothing I could do mm. to make it grow. And I felt the same way in my band. It was just like we did all the stuff that the more successful bands did, but it didn't yield the same results. Yeah, It's not that we weren't good. We were awesome. What was it? Something about it was just not resonating and it was a waste of time to continue. However... For instance, with URM, uh, when we started the podcast prior to launching Nail the Mix and everything else, the plan was always to turn it into what it is now and what it's going to become. But it started as just a podcast and it was small. Yeah. Started with only 36 listeners, but directionally, it was loved immediately and the reaction was great immediately. And so even though it was small, directionally, you could see that it was going the right way. So it's being it's being able to recognize I guess the momentum and almost like you said kind of the you know feeling a current and and if you although it's hard if you feel like you're kind of going with momentum then kind of gives you the gives you the confidence to kind of push forward on it whereas if all the momentum's yeah. just for whatever reason especially when all the pieces you think are right you know, when you think all the pieces are right and it's still not working, I think that that's probably that's probably a bit of a sign. 
Well, yeah, because there's factors outside of your control yeah. that have a lot to do with your success. Like you can work hard and you can be smart and you can have great ideas, but if other people aren't interested, then yeah. they're not interested. And it kind of doesn't matter what you do. The thing is, the reason it's hard to tell the difference is because you're working hard no matter what. Yeah. And at the beginning of anything, it's going to be slow. Even if you're successful, there's going to be slow periods. Absolutely. So you have to be able to recognize when this is just a slow period or this is natural because the idea hasn't caught on yet versus nobody wants this. The one thing that I've, I've and again, uh, talking about not being a science, I mean, this is the least scientific thing and it's kind of just leaving it up to, to the universe a little bit. I guess it's a little bit kind of like the law of attraction, you know, idea. But in, until I find a better method, I've used the people that whatever I'm doing is attracting or that I'm working with or as, as kind of the sign. Um, if I look back and I look at all the things that worked out versus all the things that didn't, no matter how hard I was working, like you said, you're always working hard and you're typically, none of us are working on what we think are shitty ideas. I mean, or we wouldn't be working on them, right? Yeah. Or shitty bands or, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Although I know plenty of people who've worked with shitty bands and shitty ideas that ends up being very successful. And then you're like, what the fuck? But, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> they obviously didn't think it was shitty. So, you know, it is what it is. But um, when I look back, the things that didn't work out, no matter how hard I worked, typically the people that I was working with or the people involved, I'm, I'm probably not even still in, in touch with them today. It's almost like a little bit of a red flag if kind of like, you know, I've worked on projects where I'm like, man, this project's going to be awesome. There's a bunch of assholes involved, but I just got to fucking deal with it because it's going to be great. <laughs> and no matter how good of an idea, no matter how much the pieces always work, you know, you're putting up with a couple assholes or you're, put, you're putting up with a guy who you think's, you know, a little bit of a, a snake and you're just like, I'm just going to swallow my pride. I'm going to bite my, you know, bite my tongue and I'm just going to move forward. Those never work. Whereas the ones that seem, you're like, yeah, this is kind of a long shot. I don't know how great the idea is, but you know what? The people are cool. You know, I really love this. You know, the everybody's getting along. You know, that's a guy I want to be doing business with regardless of whatever it is. And that's the thing that kind of seems to work. So that's that's kind of what I've resorted to at this point of just being like, okay, I'm going to just like really analyze who's who's involved, who wants to be involved, who is, you know... Who are we trying to pull into the fold? Who's just naturally coming into the fold? And if though if that scenario looks good because of the people, then you know roll with it. If that makes any sense at all. Do you think? Well, do you think that it's because when you're not getting thrown off constantly, like uh, like alarm bells aren't going off, red flags aren't going off constantly about the people you're involved with, you personally can do a better job, you're not distracted by your own negative feelings about the situation? Yeah, maybe. It's weird. It's like I, I try, if I'm going to do something and I'm going to like dive in and like there's no half-assing it, right? So I, I try not to do something and then resent it or then feel like, ah, oh, fuck, I shouldn't be doing this or like feel negative about it. Like I definitely try to put that positive spin on it. So I think during that time, I recognize that somebody's an asshole or somebody's, you know, unethical or somebody's got principles that don't align with mine, but I don't let it drag me down. I just kind of accept it for what it is and be like, hey, that's part of the, that's part of the deal here. So, you know, acknowledge it, be realistic, don't get fooled, but move forward knowing what you're dealing with. Uh, so I don't necessarily, it doesn't really 
drag me down, in, but I do recognize that there's kind of some, I don't want to say shadiness going on. The way I put it is I trust people to be themselves. Yeah. So if I feel like I'm dealing with somebody shady, rather than let it bother me, I just try to figure them out. Me too, and then, 100%. Uh, yeah, just figure them out. Yeah. Because what they say to you might not be trustworthy, but the thing that is trustworthy is them being themselves. Yeah. And so if you understand them, then you can accurately maneuver or just uh, make things work. Yeah, you know what you're dealing with. So, you know, there shouldn't be any surprises if, you know, a contract comes across your desk or a business agreement, you know, an operating agreement for a business and all of a sudden something's kind of off. You don't get bent out of shape. You kind of, you're like, yeah, we kind of expected that. Now we've got to figure out how to move past this. You know, or whatever it happens to be. I'm using business as a as the example here, but I mean, it could it could even be working with a band where you've got somebody that's got ulterior motives, and you know, somebody's trying to, you know, all the all the you know bullshit behind the scenes of making music and working with different personality types, and everybody's got their agenda. Whether it's oh, I got to get my publishing on this song, or I've got a, you know, whatever it happens to be. You, you just as long as you know what you're dealing with and you're realistic about it, then you can you can kind of figure out the path forward. But if you got the wool pulled over your eyes, or you're you've got that, you know, the oh no, it's not that he's just trying to whatever. And it's like no, no, but he, the guy's an asshole. The guy's shady. So be it. Mm-hmm. He's obviously bringing something to the table, or he wouldn't be there. Deal with the fact of you know what that person is, and and just move forward, knowing you know what the, what the facts are. So I completely, completely, hundred percent agree with you on this. This makes me wonder about actually being in the studio because artists are such wildly different people. And yeah. you're right, like they're those types of ulterior motives, like. I want my publishing on this or I just <laughs> I want to I want the credit for this or yeah. my idea is better or that person sucks or yeah. whatever whatever it is you have to be a master at being able to handle those scenarios cuz you've got really big credits you've obviously done this at the highest levels is this something that you learned how to do or is like the people skills part of it something that just came to you naturally. I'd have to say it's you know if I if I kind of reflect back, it's probably personality traits that were kind of that were already ingrained, and personality traits that happened outside of the studio and would probably be, you know, utilized with if I went into a different field or whatever, or even just you know thinking about like social circles. Like it's it's a similar thing. That being said, I have worked with I've had I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of like you know. A list, either artists or producers or managers or AR guys, like just like top level guys where you can kind of look and see how they handle certain situations. You'd be like, okay, I'm gonna learn from that and I'm gonna learn from that. So you're constantly kind of molding your your skill set. But the core of it, I mean, is is kind of you're gonna deal with situations the way you deal with them. And I've seen I've seen like the hard ass old school guys being like, no, fuck you. It's my way. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yep. And I've seen like, you know, almost like the ultra passive, like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's make sure everybody's happy. Let's keep the vibe. And, you know, I've, I've seen that as well. And then I feel like I'm kind of somewhere in between. I mean, it's, it's, it, some of the some of the artists that I work with, the fact that I'm from Canada is a little bit of a joke because you know Canada, you know you can kind of interchange the Switzerland and Canada, you know, analogy, <laughs> right? And they're like, oh, you're Canadian, of course you're sitting on the fence, right? <laughs> 
but I kind of, or, or I want to keep the peace. Yeah. But yeah, I think you have to, again, you have to look at who you're dealing with and you have to act appropriately. And again, like I know some guys who are, you know, you could take the most sensitive lead singer who needs to be coddled like a, like a little puppy dog, or you're just, it's not going to work. And you get the producer in there who's just beating them over the head and just being completely insensitive and, and, you know, the tough love and just whatever. He doesn't recognize that that's not working, right? And then you've got, you get the other guys where it's like they're just super passive and they just sit there and hit the space bar and be like, oh man, that sounds really good. That sounds awesome. That sounds great. And meanwhile, your singer's needs to be beat over the head, you know, in order to get anything half decent. And he doesn't recognize that either. So I think you got to recognize who you're dealing with and be able to pull on some different skill sets to utilize kind of like what's going to get the best result. And I mean, I'm talking about music production, but you know, as as you know, and I've heard talked about on your podcast a lot, there's there's a lot of like you know psychology behind like just managing personalities and bands or whatever. I've been pretty fortunate. There have been a couple band scenarios where like you know band members are on the brink of getting like kicked out mid session or yeah. you know album <laughs> finishes, but the band breaks up before the album comes out. Like I have been a part of few a few of those. I've got colleagues who like it seems like every other band it happens with and I'm just like, what the fuck's going on? I like that has happened to me a couple times. And if I think back, it had to do with me not understanding who I was dealing with exactly. Like maybe going too hard and the person that needed to be coddled or whatever it was, but uh, whatever the mismatch was, was so strong that it created a rift in the band. And it, it brought, I mean, let me just say though, I don't think it created any problems that weren't already there. Just magnifies them and shows them. Yeah, the studio magnifies everything. I, yeah. I think I heard that the studio is the number one place where bands break up and I think that that's true because that's everything's on the line there. In a live performance setting on tour, uh, you may not even be able to hear what the other person's doing, <laughs> right? Like yeah. you might, you might not. Yeah, I know some bands true. that in their in ears only have themselves in the click track. For instance, yeah, you may have no clue that someone in your band isn't very good. I know that you're cooped in with people, but you can kind of go into your own world. Whereas in the studio. Everyone who's there is working towards this same goal and they're all going to be on the spot and everyone's going to know that they're on the spot and yeah. they're either going to sink or swim. And uh, how that all goes, I think, will affect the uh, longevity of the band or at least of the of their membership in the band. 100%. Yeah, and, and like I said, I've, I've definitely had... I've definitely had those experiences for whatever reason. I don't know why. I like I have no idea. And again, I like I try not to reflect on it too much. I just try to roll with it. But a lot of the people that I've worked with and a lot of the bands that I've worked with, I seem to either work with a lot of bands who have a very distinct alpha mm -hmm. or artists who they're like it's them and then the band is just kind of there to support, right? And, you know, or the band has hired guns. Like 
I mean, I have obviously done the four teenagers who are equal parts who just got signed and are going to take over the world and are, you know, going to fucking kick every door down and just like piss and vinegar, right? I've worked with them too. But the majority of my career up to this point has been a lot of, yeah, there's a band, but there's an, there's the alpha and he calls the shots or there's an artist and the band, yeah, maybe, maybe they're part of the thing, but they're there simply to support, you know, whatever the artist is, or simply just, you know, the band doesn't even come in and it's all studio guys. Like I've, for whatever reason, I'd say that's been like three quarters of my career. So I haven't had to deal with the 19 year old kid with the fucking massive ego who's actually done nothing that you got to like put him in his place. (laughs) I haven't had to deal with that as much as others. (laughs) I know I'm very, I am very fortunate. Now that being said, I have worked with a lot of guys who are just like, okay, I understand you've been doing it like this for 10 years, but let's try this. So that's kind of the flip side, right? Is having to be in the studio with a guy and making a suggestion. And then he turns around and like points at his 30 million, you know, seller plaque and was like, you know, and I'm like, okay, fuck. <laughs> you know, like what? Well, maybe there is something to it. <laughs> I had Devin Townsend on the podcast. Oh, I love Devin. We were talking about Chad Kroger actually. Yep. Cause you know, they kind of had like a brief partnership or something. Yep. And we were talking about how Chad is, uh, a lot of people think that they try to make music like that. And yeah. what Devin was saying, and this reflects my theory is that that kind of music is who he is. Like, yeah. it's his brain that creates songs that resonate with normal people yep. in that sort of way. It's his uh, drive that has propelled them to the top, but it's not an act. Like, that's who he is to the core. I've become really good buddies with Chad. I consider him to be, you know, one of my one of my best friends. So I I get sensitive or I get defensive. I mean, they've got to be historically ha- have some of the most, you know, uh, vocalized kind of disdain or hate or whatever you want to call it. And it seems like every any time I come into contact with anybody who's like, oh, you work with Nickelback, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, why does everybody hate Nickelback? And if I have to have that conversation one more time, I'm gonna just fucking no no I, I i don't but i mean it's it is one of those things where everybody seems to think they know what somebody's motives are simply by the outcome right yep and ultimately it shouldn't even really matter but for somebody to claim that you know what what a guy, and I'll use Chad as an example, but I mean, you can use anybody. You could use any pop music. It seems like anybody who's not a fan of pop music or is, you know, an artist or doesn't like mainstream music likes to criticize thinking that it's contrived and that yep. the motive behind it is disingenuous and all this other shit that really is like, who cares? But do you like the sound coming out of the speakers or not? That's to me. That's all that matters. And if you went and looked on on my playlist or my my iTunes, you'd you'd be like, okay, cool, yeah, you got Pantera, but then you know what comes on in the shuffle is you know Neil Diamond and the Everly Brothers, and people are like, what the fuck is this, right? <laughs> you know, and and that's just that's do I like the sound or not? And Chad's very much the same way. And and I mean, we've we hear music very similar, which is I think why we work so well together. We hear sounds similar. So like, you know, if it's, if it's tones, drum tones, guitar tones, balances, um, even song structures and that type of production and just frequencies, you know, and, and he, and Chad's a master at that. There's, it's not, he didn't, he doesn't stumble upon 
doing what he does, but it's not contrived in a disingenuous way, if that makes any sense. I mean, he... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to make this sound egotistical, but I, and I tell, this to, I tell this to young bands that I work with. I'm like, you have to be the biggest fan of your song or your, your record. If you don't absolutely love it, if you're from day one, if you don't absolutely love it, then it's going to be hard to... When I say sell it, I don't mean like from a you know merchandise standpoint, but I mean like to really connect to connect, to connect with people. Totally, I'm like you're. If you don't love it, how are, how do you expect other people to love it? So you know when I'm making a when I, when I'm when I'm in the studio with Chad and we're making whether it's a Nickelback song or whether it's a song for I mean he he works with a lot of other artists as well. Regardless of who it's for, he's not going to say, yeah, that's done. I don't like it, but you know what? It checks all the boxes on the pop music charts, so it's good to go. That's what people think. I know. It's ridiculous. It's really stupid. It is completely ridiculous. When that song comes out, and, and I mean, to the extent of I'm a piece of a production that I'm working with, ultimately, if the artist is 100% behind something and I'm like 85% behind something, I'll try to bridge that gap of that 15% without like mm-hmm. bringing their 100% down. But ultimately, their 100% satisfaction and getting behind it and connect and being like absolutely in love with it is more important than the 15% I didn't get for myself or for my ears. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I've always thought that... and. I don't mean it in the dishonest way because politicians lie, but <laughs> they do. you kind of have to treat it like you're running for office in a way. Like you have to be that behind your own message, in this case music, to really propel it to where you'd like it to go. Yeah. I, I don't know a single artist that I can think of who has a career of note, whether it's pop or metal or whatever, who didn't have that feeling about their own music. Yeah. It, it makes no sense. Why would they Why would they move forward? How could you possibly put the effort in required if you didn't feel that way well, about it? I have definitely been witness to, I mean, one of, one of the most eye-opening experiences that I've ever had was I was involved with a pop project, I don't even know how many years ago now, and it was like, you know, I mean, I do, I do a lot of different genres, but I've mainly been like a rock guy and kind of dabble in the pop here and there, kind of wherever it crosses over or, it, you know, if there's a relationship with an artist that works, whatever. But it was a full-on L.A. pop thing, like the most expensive studio in town locked out for eight months. You know, there Holy were days that I showed up and nobody came. Was it a known band? Uh, yeah, I don't want to say who it was. Just but No, no, that's fine. Just I just wanted to know the context. Yeah, totally. You know, there were days that I showed up and like there's a catering plate and, uh, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and nobody's there. And like at six o'clock in the evening, I get a call being like, oh yeah, we're not going to work today. And I'm like, okay, well, there's like $300 of catering on the on the credenza and this studio is $2000 a day and it's like nobody cares right and then that was just kind of to set up the scene right so that was already i mean i got into the music business as the fucking you know the lights were turning on and everybody was leaving so this to me being like wow this still does exist just on a very you know very you know there's a there's the 0.0001% of the music industry who still has this but it was very eye opening because it was like one week with five writers 
And then the next week would be like four other writers. And every writer was like the hot guy, you know, who had like, and they would all come into the studio and be like, oh yeah, that song, that Rihanna song, I wrote that. And then you look at it and there's seven writers. And you're like, huh, interesting. Okay, cool. Everybody stakes claim, right? Yep. There were, there are definitely, that was very eye-opening to me because that was like the very first time that I saw like formulaic-based music production or writing where it was like, here's the right way to do that. We got to go to that part in the song or we got to change to that chord or we got to, this has got to be this because of this. And I was like, fuck, that's very, it's very interesting because typically, you know, in the rock world, you're, you're a lot more like feel, right? That feels right. That sounds right, whatever. And this was a little more formulaic. And as this was going on, I was kind of like, fuck, this does happen. People do make music simply to achieve the end goal of it being as catchy as, as possible or as, as accessible or, you know, whatever. Still, at the end of that, whether you want to consider that disingenuous or not, at the end of that, every one of the five guys in the room was absolutely fucking in love with what came out the other end. So was it disingenuous or was it simply their system? And at the end of the day, do you like the song or do you not? And if you don't like the song, who gives a fuck how it was done? And if you do like the song, who gives a fuck how it was done? Dude, I just think it's their system. Who gives a fuck how it was done? Totally. That's always been my opinion. One of the things I love the most about producing music is I love, and I don't get the opportunity as much as I'd like, and it's something that I, you know, I definitely am, am aiming towards. I love taking bands that are like four feet outside of being accessible to a big fucking audience mm -hmm. and helping them move that line or helping them kind of walk over to that, not not in a way that, oh, I'm, oh, I'm losing my credibility or I'm, I'm sacrificing my art or whatever, but being Just like- Just that little, little tweak. Totally. That makes all the difference. I get so much satisfaction over taking a band who like, you know, if, if the song came on in the car, my wife would be like, can we turn this off? To to my wife being like, fuck, what's this? And I use my wife because like, she's just kind of the average everyday listener, right? Everybody's got that person in their life who's kind of like, I don't really care who it is. And they're, you know, I don't want to call them top 40 fans because sometimes a, a, a metal song will come on and my wife will be like, oh, who's this? This is cool. It's got a cool melody, cool rhythm, whatever. She doesn't care, right? I love taking those bands and helping them just kind of be like, okay, cool, you've got 200 people at your show. This album we made, now you have the ability to play for 2,000 people. Or take the 2,000, you'd be like, okay, you guys can play like 1,500 people right now. I want you guys to play for 15,000 people. Like, uh, I want, I, I love taking that, helping people take that step. And the thing that I sound like, I feel like I'm a broken record because I've probably said it 100,000 times, but it's usually new to them, is... You know, let's just use a random chord change. Let's say just from a E to a C. Okay. Doesn't matter what it is. It's irrelevant. They're writing a song and be like, yeah, you know what? That that second chord sounds funny to me. Let's say they're going to like an A. I'd be like, that sounds, it sounds weird to me. Like this doesn't work. I'd be like, oh, really? I kind of like it. It kind of sounds different. I'd be like, why don't we, why don't we go to the C? Why don't we go E to the C? I'd be like, yeah, but that's kind of like the predictable thing that like everybody does. You know, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like it should go to, right? And my, my thought is, yeah, that's fucking right. There's, there's a reason. A, there's a reason for why. why. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not smart enough to know the reason. I just know that it works. But they'll fight me on it, right? And the conversation, and it's a philosophical conversation that you can apply to any decision you make in your life in any realm. Is 
I look at it and I say, you not wanting to play the C because you think everybody does it and you think that's the contrived thing is no different than the guys who say, we have to play the C because that's where everybody goes. You are basing your decision off of external shit. Whether you're going the heads or the tails of it, you're deciding based off of something other than what's serving the song and what's serving the production. Yeah, yeah. If you're just going to the A to be contrarian, that's the exact same thing. It's just the opposite of going to the C because that's what everybody does and that's what yep. works, right? Do whatever makes the song the best and forget about all the other shit, right? Now, ultimately, that usually plays into my favor because I, tip, I tend to like pop music. And when I say pop music, I don't mean just like top 40, but I, I tend to like, you know, stuff that we've been, you know, conditioned to like over the last, you know, 50, 60 years of mm -hmm. mainstream music, right? Popular music. Totally popular music. Yeah. So, I mean, it usually falls into my, into my lap because I typically the weird shit I, I tend to kind of go away from, but that's also what's keeping their audience at 200 instead of 2000, because very much like we we're talking about Chad Kruger, his ears, like you talk, like I think he's probably talked about it in interviews before, but we've talked about it a lot as well. When he grew up, his mom loved mainstream music. The radio was always playing like Top 40 or whatever the rock station was, like always. She wasn't listening to weird fucking jazz. She wasn't listening to classical. She wasn't listening to any of that shit. Like, not saying it's shit. Oh, you, uh, you know, I'm stuff. just saying like <laughs> stuff. Yeah, uh, I use shit for you know. I don't. I don't mean it as a. You know. Shit is a great word. It means so so many different things. <laughs> I know, right? Mine's just like stuff. People are like you think my music shit, and I'm like, no, 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 shit, just stuff. <laughs> But like when he when he grew up listening to music, it was always whatever was popular at the time. So his ear got conditioned to that. And mine did too. Like my dad, my mom and my dad both always had the radio on. My dad loves music and he was always, you know, he's always playing music. And even my stepdad, when, my, when you know, my mom got remarried, he liked, I don't want to say popular music, but he liked a different era of popular music that exposed me to stuff. Like my dad was always into kind of like current rock music, whereas like my stepdad was into more like oldie stuff. Like, you know, that's where like the Everly Brothers came from. I would hear the Everly Brothers like, you know, every weekend blaring on the stereo, right? And, it's just, and so my your ear gets conditioned to very young to kind of, and, and then that usually carries forward. And yeah, you, you, you get exposed to different stuff as you grow older and you, you start learning and you liking different things. But I think a lot of, a lot of kind of what you end up naturally gravitating towards or what your ear gets drawn to is, is, is a lot of just kind of what you listen to sub kind of like subconsciously, not like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to a record, like just kind of what's playing. You can alter that by actively choosing to take in uh, new influences. Absolutely. Uh, but actively doing it. I've had this, yep. I've always thought that the most important thing that a producer brings to the table is their taste. Yes. They have to cultivate their tastes. And for some people who are fortunate enough to have musical parents yep. or music-loving parents, such as yourself or me, it was just there. It just happened yep. naturally. But a lot of other people don't have that. And so I say to them that you have to create the scenario where you bring that into your head because whatever music is in your head is going to somehow, those influences or those tendencies are going to somehow filter out. That's also 
why I stopped going to classes at Berkeley uh, mm. was because I hated the music that was being taught. I hated the sound of the, there was like a sound to the yeah. musicians there. Like I hated that stuff so much. And I already had this theory that whatever you take in, you shit back out musically. Somehow, so, absolutely. Yeah, somehow. It's going to come out in some way, shape, yep. or form. Yep. So like if I'm sitting there learning Chick Corea tunes, you know, he's great <laughs> and all, but I don't listen to that stuff. It's not my thing. I don't like it. If yeah. I start transcribing yeah. that stuff like I'm supposed to, it's going to influence my playing. If I start learning blues, which is not my yeah. thing, it's going to come out. If I start transcribing orchestral stuff like what I did do, then that's what came out in my style. So yeah. I think that people need to take that seriously. And if their tastes aren't cultivated enough to where they don't have that instinct for helping bands go to the right chord or whatever it is, go to the right riff, whatever the case may be, then I think that they actively need to make a point of taking in more music and making it part, uh, part of their lives, yeah. which is easier to do than ever. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, I'm, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 40. Okay, so we're about the same age. I remember, you know, being a kid and having a paper route and you'd be able to buy one one cassette a month or whatever it was, you know, and, and you'd be very you'd be very careful about which one you bought because you knew you're going to be listening to it for the next month until you got the next one. And yeah, there was radio, but you know, you're just kind of at the mercy of whatever's being played depending on where you live is going to be different. But then you listen to that cassette and you listen to it over and over and over and over and over again, whether it's good or bad. And, you know, it's funny when you go back and listen to some of the stuff that you, you're like, fuck, I used to love that album. Like, I was a huge Kiss fan when I was, <laughs> I don't know, probably like maybe like nine to like 17. I fucking loved Kiss. And it, like, it was like a goal to have every Kiss album, right? When you're only buying like one album a month or then when you get a little older, you've got a better job, you know, part-time job, you can buy maybe like, you know, two CDs or, you know, you do the Columbia house, get 10 for a cent. I did that. Yeah, me, I did it like, <laughs> I, I did that using like my middle name. I you did it using my brother's name. I did it like five <laughs> times. But you listen to that stuff over and over and over again. And then it's like later on in life, you go back and you're like, man, I used to love that record. And there's some Kiss albums that I can't, that are unlistenable. I remember, yep. I remember being a kid being like, fuck, I remember listening to that album for two months, nonstop. And I loved it. And now it's unlistenable. But it's because you didn't have everything else to listen to. Um, I know I'm getting a little kind of going off on a tangent here, but... That's no, okay. We go on tangents. <laughs> it's very interesting to me how bands in this day and age pick producers. How so? What do you mean? Well, okay, so... I think a lot of people now, because there's just, there's no, well, I don't say there's no money, but there's just not, the money's not there that it used to be. I, f I feel like people just kind of go to whomever they can. There is a lot of that for sure. Like the convenient option. Totally. If you live in Oklahoma and you're like, okay, cool. We got this little deal with, you know, whomever. And, you know, even if it's a, even if you got signed to a major, like the budget still sometimes can't pay for, you know, what you think you are going to get, but whatever. Let's say you live in Oklahoma and you get signed to a kind of a mid-level label and you're like, okay, cool. You guys got, let's say 30 grand to go make a record. And you're like, cool. Reasonable budget. Yeah, for, for that scenario, you say, let's say yep. you're like, you know, kind of like a hard rock, you know, band, whatever. Let's, and if you're, your first album, you got a little bit of a following. Okay, we, we're going to give you 30 grand to go make a record, right? And you're in the middle of the U.S. 
or even if you're on the East Coast or whatever, and you're like, yeah, these four producers that I love their work, they're all in LA. Well, 30 grand's not going to get you, that's not even going to get you the, the travel and the expense of going and making a record out in LA. So you got to, now you got to say, okay, well, who's willing to come to where we are? Okay, so that just cut out half the guys because they don't want to travel. Maybe they got families and they're like, fuck that. I'm not going out to fucking Oklahoma or whatever. No no diss on Oklahoma. I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> not right now. <laughs> but you know, like, so you end up kind of going with what you can go with. And then you're kind of like, okay, well, who do we know? Or okay, who's willing to do it for this or whatever? So, you know, there was a time, again, I, I got into the music business um, I, I was pretty young. I was, I think I had just turned 19, 18 even maybe when I got like my first real studio job. I kind of got in, I think like the year after Napster, like basically really started becoming a thing. <laughs> Those days. Totally. And, and to make matters even worse, my first real studio gig was at Sony Music Canada. So one of the majors in their in-house studio. So like I saw the industry crumble from the inside. Like I wasn't at some commercial studio that was kind of wondering what was going on. Like I was privy to like all the shit that was happening in one of the, you know, one of the majors. Yep. That sounds fascinating actually. You know what? It's one of those things I look back and I'm like, man, I wish I could go back now because obviously you're young, right? And I, and I was more like concerned with like trying to get a job and trying to learn and trying to like my career. So a lot of that stuff, I think I didn't even really pay attention to. It would be amazing if I could go back now and be like, okay, don't don't worry about, you know, doing a recall, right? I know how to do that. I don't have to stress about that. Pay attention to the conversations you're hearing in the hall when, you know, the president of the record label's talking with like the head of marketing and they're talking about how the there's not gonna be an industry and two years or six months or whatever. Like I was privy to that stuff, <laughs> but yet I was so like just overwhelmed by the studio stuff that I didn't really, it didn't really sink in. But that being said, if it had sunk in, I might've just been like, fuck this, I'm out. This is actually one of the reasons I started URM. A lot of good people left. They jumped ship and yeah. you know, I can't blame them for it. Yeah. But I felt like somewhere around that 2010 era, Shit was really weird. Uh, like it had been ten years of the downloading thing. Uh, lots of stuff had been decimated. Lots of studios had been decimated. The home recording thing was in its infancy, and most of the stuff coming out of there was pure crap. Yeah, there was no real information out there about how to get good at heavier music. Yep. Uh, but there were no studios anymore to mentor people. Yeah. So it was like, where is this going? Like I put so many years into this and it's just gonna die fuck that so that that was actually that whole time period was one of the inspirations to start this to uh replace in as much as you can online because it's still just online but in as much as you can that old mentorship system because otherwise i feel like with very few exceptions heavy music was headed to the dumpster as far as the bar, the quality bar goes, like players yeah. were really starting to suck. Oh yeah, mixes were. Meh. I mean, <laughs> obviously there were always greats in every time period, and actually the Nickelback stuff always sounded incredible. Yeah, the highest bar. I mean, that's that. If there's one thing that I've that I can kind of share with listeners about my experience with Nickelback and and you know the, the whole band, but Chad specifically is whether you like what he does or not, his bar is so high that whatever he does is going to be amazing 
Now, if you know, if he's a sushi chef and you don't like sushi, uh, it doesn't fucking matter. He's not. You're never gonna like what he does. But yeah. Anyway, sorry to kind of throw that in there. But yeah, you're right. It's it's. There's always the greats. But at that point in time, there was a lot of shit. And also, you didn't know if labels were going to be around in five years. They, oh yeah. They were saying things like five years from now, seventy five percent of these labels are going to be gone. Well, plus the guys at that time at the labels. I, I didn't know anymore because they either they were gone or they got they just promoted like junior guys to cut costs and then it's like yep. so so yeah it was it was a very it was a very weird time period for sure man I remember when Roadrunner Records because my band used to be signed to Roadrunner yeah yep. so I know them they cut like in one day I would say. 85%, maybe the number's wrong, or something like that, of their staff. And I Jesus mean, Christ. heavy hitters, like yeah. the dude who signed Nickelback, Monty Connor, like they, they didn't cut the small fries. They fucking eviscerated the staff, yeah. which blew my mind. It was like, if you're firing the dude that signed Nickelback and the dude that signed Slipknot, what the fuck is going on? At that point, it's just a business mechanism, right? It's not about the music. It has everything to do with your salary's too high, and we're we gotta we gotta get rid of your you know your bonus that we're still paying because you brought in a fucking band that sold thirty million albums and all this shit. Like it just becomes a business, and that's that's what happened. Was in my opinion, is it turned into where just the the nuts and bolts of the business, the spreadsheet was more important than than the music, right? And the bottom line, not even on a profit level, just an operating level, everybody was more worried about costs and everything else than they were about music, which is just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy as we saw. Um, but I remember I remember when I worked at Sony, I mean, you were talking 2000, you're talking 2010. I remember when I worked at Sony. Yeah. yeah, I remember when I worked at Sony, 2003. I remember, no, it had to be before that, 2001. So I came to LA in 2003. 2001, maybe 2002, doesn't matter. But that time period, I remember going into Sony and literally like walking in the building and seeing a line of people walking out with like their box. Oh man. With the, with like the security guy that we all know because we see him every day. Like, you know, I can't remember his name, but you know, you know, Mike walking out, you know, 50 people. And I'm like, what? you know, some of them, you, some of them, you, you know, just from kind of being in the building and seeing around and you're like, what's going on? And like, you see the look on their face. You don't even have to ask. And I'm like, holy fuck, what am I doing here? Like, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm like, you know, 19 year old kid who's had blinders on being like, I'm going to make records for the rest of my life, you know, since I was like 15. And I'm just like, holy fuck, what's happening right now? So it's interesting. You're talking about 2010, you know, cause at that point, the whole economy was in the shit, right? Yes, it was. And I remember a lot of friends not in the music business, like, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, just being like, oh, fucking recession, fucking recession. And somehow I'd been able to survive those years and still be making music. And I'd be like, not to sound insensitive right now, but fucking music business has been in a recession for 10 fucking years. Like my whole career has been in the middle of a recession in the, in the music business. It's like, get used to it. Like that's, that's reality for me. 
it became reality for the rest of the world. <laughs> it's kind of similar to this quarantine thing. Yeah. Whereas now I think a lot of producers are saying, this is how we normally live. Totally. I've seen all the Get, memes. They're hilarious. Yeah. Pic- pictures before quarantine, yeah. after quarantine, there's no difference. <laughs> yeah. I remember it, in around 2009 and 10, the jokes were that now everybody else gets to see what it's like to get paid as a mus- like musicians do. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's why in that time period, I didn't get freaked out. I didn't either. I'd been living like that for, like, the, my industry had been like that since I started. Yeah, exactly. I was freaked out about the direction that Fair enough. heavy music was headed yeah. quality-wise, because I felt like that right there was going to be the death blow. Um, yeah. the, the sales part, I felt like a technology would eventually come around, and it did. It always does, but I felt like if the quality wasn't resurrected, then what would be the point of the technology that eventually came around? And with so many really brilliant people jumping ship, it was just a a very scary time. And that's why also right now, having lived through that, and also, you know, I got signed in 2005. You were the one who got a deal in 2005. Yeah, I was like the last, the last one. So that's the last one to get a good Roadrunner deal, I think. Um, other than like legacy acts, I think. No, I honestly think that at least in the world of metal, extreme metal for that time period, we were the final band to get like a real Roadrunner records record deal. Like, yeah, we like missed the cut off by like two weeks, maybe or something oh. like that. But to me, I've grown up in the struggle of the music industry. So seeing this right now that's going on and I I see a lot of people are freaked out and I'm not freaked out. And people might say that it's because I have URM, but it's not because of URM. If I was producing records right now, I wouldn't be freaked out. Yeah, And it's because I think that history shows that no matter what crisis comes and goes, eventually... The music industry finds a way to put itself back together because there's one fundamental thing that doesn't change, which is people love music. And since people love music, there's always going to be a need for the people who can make it on the musician end and the production end and business end. It's always going to be there, no matter how it changes forms. So this current situation could last two months, it could last six months, but at some point, the situation is going to end and then things will put themselves back together. It might be different, but they'll still put themselves back together. At least in LA, we're pretty much in kind of like total lockdown here. I mean, you still see people out, but for the most part, I, I don't think I've left the house in almost three weeks. But it's interesting that, you know, talking about, yeah, it will come back, but it's it's interesting how I don't even think it's affecting it that much because for mu- for like music production you know, business, whatever you want to call it, guys, even if you're not making a living doing it, even if you just do it as a hobby, this scenario, I mean, the business and the, the, just the world, the music production world has, has gone to this very kind of isolated, um, everybody's got their own studios. You don't record bands all at the same time. Like we've been, like you said, we've been doing this for years. It's not a result of, you know, like, I know people who are at home and they're like, oh, I've got to you know, do Zoom meetings and blah, 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 and whatever. And I'm like, I mean, we've been doing this. It's not a result of, of this lockdown. We've been doing this as, as just a, you know, a, the way that things have gone, right? Yep. So interestingly enough, 
there's a couple of producers and a couple of writers that I've worked with uh, that I do a lot of work with consistently. And probably within the last week, you know, when I've had conversations with them, they're calling me saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm starting this project. I'm going to have this ready for you to mix in like six weeks. What's your schedule? Like I've got more calls for work for like upcoming gigs, like planning gigs. And that's probably my biggest my biggest complaint about the current music business as a producer or mixer or whatever is just the lack of scheduling. Like when I first started, it seems like, you know, everybody knew what they were going to be doing this time next year. Yep. Mine doesn't work like that. And it's not that I'm not busy. I'm I'm always busy, but I I just I I very rarely get the 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 layout the way that I want it on the calendar. But I've gotten more calls in the last week laying out projects like four, five, six months from now or three weeks from now or two months from now. And what's happening is I'm talking to the you know people who are calling me for stuff and they're being like, yeah, so-and-so just called. They want to start writing a new record. And they're like, that was came out of left field. Like everybody right now is like, you know, tours are getting canceled. So they're like, okay, well, let's be creative or I'm locked inside. So I have no other option but to be creative. So it's like, this is actually making business increase because now everybody else is doing the same thing that we've been already doing for the last however many years. And we don't have to stop anything, you know? The fact that I can't get a guitar player, I can't get a band to, to go to a, a commercial studio, you know, in LA, I, I haven't needed that in years. So that, that, that doesn't stop me from doing anything. It's like, and everybody's got a rig at home. Even if somebody's shitty at recording themselves, like, I mean, I've, I've done so many you know, FaceTime sessions over the last two weeks of just helping people get their shit set up and be like, listen, give me five passes through the song. Just make sure you give me the DI and the guitar, then send me all the tracks. I'll go through and we can, like, like you, we're doing stuff anyways. And it's not that drastically different from how we were doing it before. Uh, whereas other industries have had to really change how they do things. Yeah, it seems like quite the mind fuck for them. I th was talking to a pretty high up A&R guy at a major label yesterday that I'm friends with. Yep. And he told me that if for him at that label, they are busier than ever. I believe it. And what they're doing right now is stacking material. Yep. So they're getting ready for an explosion, basically. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm getting kind of on the, you know, the ground floor as well. Just kind of like, you know, the, the ear to the ground kind of thing with getting calls from producers who are, I know they're like, listen, I'm starting, you know, this band, we're not on album cycle, but they want to start writing. I'm, I'm probably going to have, you know, stuff for you to start mixing in June. I mean, that, that, that I wasn't expecting that at this time, or I'm getting calls from artists being like, hey, can we start writing for a new record? Like, how would we do that? And then I'm, you know, I've got some online tools to be able to kind of do virtual sessions. How are you going about that? So there's a couple different ways that I'm dealing with it. <laughs> I mean, I was on FaceTime or on messages with, with Chad a couple days ago. So he's got a studio at his place up in uh, Vancouver. We'll get on messages on the computer. I'll take control of his screen or get the session, put the session in a Dropbox get it on my end, let him share my screen so I, he can see what we're doing. And he'll be like, okay, cool. We, you know, I, I laid down this guitar lick and can you edit it and then put, you know, program a drum beat on it. Okay, cool. Now send it back. I'm, I'm going to write some lyrics. I'll, you know, I'll do five takes and send them to you. And we, so we've, we've already been working like that just on some like writing, just writing sketches. And that's starting to increase with other people. I mean, the way that I'm dealing with it with a lot of my clients. A lot of my clients have their own setups 
And even if they don't necessarily really know how to run it, they have a setup so that way they you know can sketch stuff out. They can run it well enough to get the job done for what they need. Totally. Or what what I've been finding, you know, probably three times a day for the last week is exactly what I just kind of described is I'll we'll jump on the computer, I'll take control of their screen, I'll set up a session for them, I'll get their vocal on input, I'll be like, okay, go to the vocal mic. Okay, yeah, okay, level's good. I know it's not gonna be clipping. We don't need anything fancy. Okay, what what BPM you like even the most basic operation I can get set up for them and be like, okay, they know how to hit space bar. They know how to record. They know how to turn the volume up and down and be like, okay, cool. New playlist, new playlist, new playlist. Okay, throw that in the Dropbox. I'll, you know, I'll comp it when I have a second, you know, and it's been a lot of jumping around to that kind of stuff. There are some tools out there. I've been, I've been using a, an app called Session Wire. Interesting. I have not heard of that one. Yeah, and you should definitely check it out. I I, I did some uh, some alpha and beta testing for them. A company up in I think they're up in Vancouver I'm looking as well. It up right now. Yeah. So their whole thing is it's basically I mean the elevator pitch is basically it's like a Skype, but it was it's built for music production. Oh, this is cool. Yeah, it is. If you're if definitely check it out. Like even for doing like calls like this, the quality is super high. Like I do all my video conferencing with my clients on on Session Wire now. So yeah, definitely definitely a good tool to have. But there are a couple other ones out there that have popped up recently. Like everybody's figuring out a way to do it. It's just kind of like what works with your workflow. I'm not really, my workload right now, I don't have time to sit there remotely and hit the space bar for somebody. And especially if I, if it's kind of like, okay, you know, it's like, I can't really, I'm not in the room with you. The communication as good as it can be. It's not going to be as good. Like you're better off just, just go do 20 takes and send them to me and I'll put them together. Yeah, makes sense. And then I can be doing something else. Like I'm right now I'm I'm mixing two different projects at the same time. So it's like okay, I can I can be doing working on that and then tonight somebody will have a, a Dropbox folder of, you know, a new song that they wrote. And then tomorrow morning I can get up and I can program a bunch of shit and I can send it back to them. They can listen to it. They can, you know, it's 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 basically like throwing stuff back and forth. I know, I know some guys they're just like, "Oh, okay, how do we do this live?" and I'm just like, "Well, that you may need to uh <laughs> May need to let go of that one for a little bit. Well, and I have. I mean, like, in, unless you know, unless it's one of one of my clients, and let it, that I'm like, okay, we've got a deadline. We need to have something out. There's something very important. This is something that we kind of scheduled, like you know, whatever. But as of right now, it's more or less helping people get set up to to kind of do it themselves and then uploading stuff to me to kind of put together. That's how I've been dealing with it, which isn't that, again, it's not that much different than kind of how I've been, kind of things have been working for the last, I don't know, 10 years. And let me just throw this out there. If you're a touring professional band member, and I need to say specifically, not if you want to tour in the future or like did <laughs> three shows in your state, like, I mean, yeah. actually in the industry, your shit got canceled and you want to learn how to record better, hit me up and I will hook you up with a couple months of URM for free. Dude. But the criteria is you have to actually be in the industry yeah, and you actually have to have real tours canceled, not five shows up the East Coast. So don't bother me with that shit. That's pretty awesome of you. And and anybody who's in that situation that doesn't take you up on that is a fool. So that that's pretty awesome. Doing what we can. Yeah, absolutely. Do you even work with bands anymore who don't have at least one person who has a rig? Like, I feel like that's almost unheard of now. I'm trying to think of the last one that I did. The fact that you have to think about it says everything. 
Totally. Now, it is a double-edged sword, as technology is, various technologies. I think there's there's anything that's that's from a productivity standpoint that's really good there's usually from a tech you know in the technology space there's usually some sort of like unintentional drawback and like i said take up take you up on that offer because a lot of the time it's education it's just knowing how to use the tools right but what ends up happening a lot that's a challenge for me is somebody will record something and it's kind of like it's half-ass, it's clipping, it's you hear too much mm-hmm. in the room, you know, they overcompressed it, they used the wrong mic, whatever it happens to be. Yep. And then that becomes the thing that, you know, you just you, you can never either get them to do it again because they're like, oh no, I that's we already did it. I already did it. And you're like, no, it's it fucking sucks. This is exactly why they should take me up on it. 100%. Because uh, we will show them how to not do that. Totally. Because, uh, yeah, if if you're listening and you're recording stuff for a producer who's going to mix your stuff or whatnot, if you don't want them to hate their lives, you should take me up on this. Absolutely. Well, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting point because... As much as we all want to be known for being for like our creative talents, sometimes you know there's certain things that you need or there's certain things of the process that is not so much about creative and it's more about execution. Just craft, it's, Just yeah. craft and execution. Yeah, absolutely. So like there's you know I've I've as country music has turned into 80s rock and me being an 80s rock fan, I've started to do more country music because they let me make records that sound like Def Leppard and whereas rock bands don't want to sound like Def Leppard, country bands do. I've been using a lot of Nashville musicians remotely, like session musicians. And it's amazing. I've started, you know, I've started picking guys. Yeah, come up with great parts. That's cool. But when I need somebody to just play, you know, big, juicy, open chords on an acoustic guitar chugging along to the song, any one of a thousand guitar players in Nashville are going to be able to perform that the way I need it. If there's two guys who I know when they record it, not only are they not going to fuck it up, but it's actually going to sound maybe even better than what I would have been able to do in the studio with them, I'm going to use that guy. Of course. Why not? You know, now now there are certain guys, and this goes whether they're in Nashville or whether they're in L.A. or anywhere else in the world. There are certain guys who I'm like, I just I love creatively what they do, and I'll put up with the fact that I'm going to have to do a bunch of repair work, or I'm going to have to get on Skype or FaceTime or Session Wire and walk them through a setup or whatever. But I want their flavor, I want their parts because that's what their thing is. But if I just need somebody playing power chords or doing like meat and potato stuff. I'm going to go to the guy, if I have to do this remotely, who's going to be able to execute it the best, not only from a performance standpoint, but also from a recording standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, it's become a necessity, I think, for... I think it's become a necessity for a lot of musicians if you're like a hired guy, either a session musician or, or a touring guy, especially now when your tours are canceled. Here's the other thing about that. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of offset it with... I'm not expecting somebody to send me back like the most amazing recorded stuff. Like honestly, if it was just kind of like clean and done properly, yeah, and you can make it work. Not fucked up, then I'm happy. So the expectation is. So I find a lot of people that like they're like, oh shit, I'm gonna be sending my tracks. Like I gotta, you know, and they they just do too much, right? And then they end up ruining it. And you're like, hey, um, do you happen to have that without all the extra shit you put on it? And you hope they <laughs> you hope they do. And they're like, oh yeah, I thought maybe you you know, but sometimes they don't. Getting just like a clean, not fucked up recording to somebody that's not problematic is is like that's status quo. You know, if you can do that, you're 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 fine. Man, I have two points to make. 
first of all. Not to get into the technical uh, aspect of things, but... <laughs> no, it's okay. We, we go everywhere on this, but we do this really cool challenge on Nail the Mix every once in a while where I will issue the no plug-in challenge. Oh, Mix shit. this to the best I'd of your ability. I'd fail that. <laughs> well, I doubt you would fail it. I but would fail like, it miserably. <laughs> keep in mind that these... Some of these records just sound incredible. Um, yeah. You know, just faders up. Yeah. Like, I did it with an Opeth record once, yeah. like a couple of years ago. I mean, that band is incredible. And I was noticing that people's mixes were just overcooked. And it's like, Jens Bogren did such an incredible job recording this incredible band. You're making it sound worse than it did just faders up. So here's the challenge. Mix it without plugins. Just don't fuck it up. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing as what you're saying. Just don't overthink it. Just get it clean and make it work. No clipping. Uh, but, you know, this is kind of the modern version of the argument I used to give bands who were trying to get signed, which is if you have two bands, I always used to say this to unsigned bands when I was producing them. You have two bands. a and is looking at two bands. They play the exact same style of music. They're just as good as each other. They both draw the exact same number of people. However, one of them has no image and very bad business sense. And then the other one has their shit together, all else being equal. Who are they going to go with? Worse. Obviously. It's like, it's not even a question. And I feel like this is the a modern version of the same thing. You get two guitar players who could both execute the part exactly the same. I mean, obviously with their own flair, but exactly the same level of quality. Yep. One is not better than the other. They'll both get it to you fast. However, one of them will send you fucked up DIs and the other will send you a crystal clear, perfect DIs. Who are you going to go with? Absolutely. Yeah. Every, yeah, every time. It's really a no-brainer when it, when it comes to that. So, and and that, that's the thing about, again, kind of going on a little bit of a tangent, where, where we're at with technology right now is, you know, whether it be plugins or samples or just the style of music that happens to be, you know, desirable right now, and I'll say that across the board, whether it be rock or pop or country or whatever, like the, the, the tool set has leveled the playing field quite a bit, but then it's up to the user to determine like what you're going to do with that. And I think, like, I do a lot of mixing for other producers and, and artists just sending me stuff, to, like stuff that I, I didn't produce or didn't track or anything. I'd say that's an equal size of my business um, and, and my day-to-day. -day. It's very easy to get a session from somebody and within 30 seconds make the determination of, was this tracked in such a way where the producer, engineer, artist, whomever did it, had a vision or a sound and went after it, that's scenario one or scenario mm -hmm. A, or scenario B, just track everything and we'll figure it out later. It's probably like the easiest thing to, to identify in any session that you're, I'm seeing for the first time as a mixer. And what do you prefer? I really don't have a preference because there are I'm going to contradict myself. There is a scenario C of a little bit of an in between, okay. you know, and that's kind of how I track. I, I'm like, there's guys out there and I, I also get hired to track projects that I don't produce and don't mix. I produce projects that I do everything on. I produce projects where I just produce and I have somebody else engineer and I have a, a, other people mix it. 
And that, like, I, I kind of do everything in every form in depending on the project and just kind of depending on what I want to do and what kind of my workload is like. I'm familiar with the different scenarios. There are guys who want to faders up. There's, there's the mix. And now we're just worrying about some, you know, some vocal levels and we're worrying about, you know, some overall automation and maybe some master bus stuff to just kind of glue it together. But, you know, the kick drum was printed the way that we want it. And it was all EQ'd ahead of time. And then there's the, you know, we just, we were using mic pre's that have no EQ on them. They're going straight into Pro Tools and we have to do everything after the fact. And when they send you the mix, they take off all their shit. And now you're left with like just very, very kind of neutral, just clean recordings. There is a middle ground, right? And I, that when I track projects, even if I'm producing them and know where they're going to go, I kind of take that middle ground. So I like to, I like to point I like to point it in a direction. I like to say, okay, what are we? What's the song require? What are we trying to do? What's the sound of the band if they have one? You know, what are we trying to do? Well, as we're tracking it, let's point it in that direction because I also feel what you're listening to inspires the next move. So if all you're listening to is either neutral, clean, no character shit, as TLA calls it, uh, documents. Documents. That's per, that's a perfect example. Yeah. If you're listening to documents, it's not very inspiring. Just the way you know reading a document isn't that ex- inspiring. Now, on the other hand, let's use the we'll use the book analogy here because I actually I like that. I'm going to steal that from from TLA. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> if you start out the song and you're like in the book and make it uh, a suspense thriller, you paint it in such a, a way that that's all that could ever be. Well, then that's going to then inspire everything coming down the road. So I kind of like to point it in a direction, but not get so locked into that direction that it's not going to inspire stuff. Because like if you, perfect example, like if you're working with, if you're working with a hard rock band or even just a rock band, okay? So take a band, uh, Shinedown, let's say. Mm-hmm. Shinedown can have really heavy stuff and they can have stuff that's not, I don't want to say not heavy, but just maybe maybe not quite so just kind of like big riff rock, big riff arena yeah. rock and is a little more intricate and a little more layered and a little, you know, just a different style, right? If you track the drums for a song where you're like, okay, I, this could go a couple different directions and we're in the very beginning stages of doing this. If you, if you point it and go too hard in any one direction, that's going to inspire everything else down the road. Forget about fixing it. I can. You can go back and fix anything, like you really can in these days. Now you're talking about the essence of the hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So like if if you like if you want to get technical, like if you start EQing the kick drum super clicky and like just go, we're like oh we're gonna make this metal and then that's going to inspire the production down the road, right? And it's going to be very hard to be like, oh, well, why don't we bring that back to maybe like a little more like, you know, mainstream rock and not be quite so metal. Again, you can go back and fix the kick drum, but that kick drum is inspiring your next move or the the sound of the drums is inspiring your moves. It's not so much about what you can or cannot do later. It's about what's inspiring the next process. It's a very interesting take because uh, I was kind of brought up to think commit, 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 which I, I really do believe in, but... This this is kind of like a version of commit, but don't commit so hard that you limit the artistic possibilities. At least be aware of what what you're committing to and what it means. And, and yeah, it it means more than just what the sound of the drum is. Like for instance, a guitar a guitar sound is huge. Like I'm a, I'm a really fucking hack guitar player, but I love 
I love guitar tone. Like I love how I ended up recording was it's validating to listen to. Dude, it's awesome. Create, yeah. I mean, how I ended up doing this instead of playing continue playing in bands when I was, you know, 14 was, you know, I would get my guitar and instead of playing songs, I'd play chords and tweak my amp. I'd just be like more EQ, more EQ, more EQ. Like as a, everybody else was playing songs, right? I'm like, fuck songs. I just want to make my guitar sound rad. But guitar, the guitar tone's a perfect example. Like if whatever the guitar tone is, is probably going to inspire like direction of like, well, what are you going to do next? Once you got the rhythm guitar downs, now what are we going to do? Well, if the guitar tone's a certain way, it's probably going to potentially inspire, you know, if there's a counter melody, what is that counter melody going to be? Well, if the guitar tone's all just like big, heavy, like chugging stuff, it's probably going to inspire some more dark kind of, you know, counter melodies. Or if maybe the vocal's not even, maybe the, the melody's not even locked in yet, right? Doesn't this make such a great case for tracking with amp sims? Yeah, which I've been on for as long as they've existed. Like, okay, I can I can see that given this philosophy, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and and again, I don't mind committing to stuff. Like, I have I have a a, a method which I've been doing forever, where I'll have a stereo track, um, and the left side is the DI, the right side is the amp sim. Like, I use an XFX, but I, even before <laughs> that, I used other stuff. But the DI will be muted. So, but but because it's on a stereo track, it, it always stays together. And when you edit it, you don't have to worry about your groups being on or off or all this shit, right? It's just almost like I call it a I call it a multi mono track, and I use that for a bunch of different things. So it's kind of a a trick I hadn't seen anybody else do. I've been doing it for a long time, and now I see other people doing it. I'm not I'm not going to take total credit for it, but if there's one unique idea that I've had in my a, life, I know it might another be Canadian. It. <laughs> I know another Canadian who does it. Yeah, who's that? Uh, Kane Cherko does it. Okay, well, he's like 20 years younger than me, so I'm gonna yep. <laughs> I'm gonna call Brank Seniority. on that one. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He he probably it's not a novel idea. You just have to know that there's a plugin that no, it's it's a great idea. I've seen it on Nail the Mix now, and just mind you, we've done like 65 or more Nail the Mixes yeah. at this point. Yeah. So there's been a lot. I this has come up four or five times yeah. out of. 60 plus. So it's not very common, but the first time I saw it, I was like, what is this? And then maybe it was Kane who did it, but whoever it was explained it to me. I was like, oh, that's that's crafty, smart. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't always do it, but I'll do it with kick drums if there's an in and an out mic and they were already printed with the EQ that I want. And I, I know instead of just bussing it to an auxiliary and then using that or grouping them together and you know whatever, I just want to treat that as one thing. I'll put it on a stereo track and pan both sides up the middle, and now I've got one track to look at and to deal with. One EQ, I'm treating it as a whole, right? Or a snare top and bottom, I do the same thing with that. Whereas once I have those the way I want, the balance is going to... I use the trim plugin to balance them out the way I want. If the sound's all, all the way I want, I just want to treat it as one thing now, I just put it on a stereo track and pan them both up the middle. Like you can use a stereo track as two mono tracks that mm -hmm. are just always locked together. And you can even split the plugins if you want to... EQ different things. You can go into multi-mono mode and EQ them differently, right? So just, just a track management thing. But anyways, where was I going with this? Oh, committing versus not committing. Yes. As long as you're aware of kind of the potential, like another philosophical, not to kind of jump around too much again, but another philosophical kind of concept that I follow is I like to go down wrong, lots of wrong roads or at least a wrong road to know that the other one was the right one. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's an interesting one because there's been 
many times in my life where I've made a musical decision, whether it's when I was writing for my band or producing, where I knew it was right. And that there's a percentage of the time where it's like, this is the vision. Like, this is what, like, I got the vision. Like, this is it. Yeah. There is no other way. Yep. I'm sorry, but this is it. But then there's times where you're not so sure, like you think, but you're not so sure. And in those cases, I think it's worth it's worth exploring. And uh, sometimes you find that you were right. Sometimes you find you weren't. But I, I think I, I kind of... I. I would always just go with my gut on that one. Yeah. Because I feel like there is sometimes where you just get that feeling of certainty where you just, you know it's right. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about so many different decisions. I mean, over the course of a, of a, let's say one song from the production, from beginning to end, from writing to mastering, I mean, there are a billion decisions, right? So there are certain decisions that you're like, I don't need to do X to determine that it needed to yep. be Y. Like, I, I I know that, like, it's Y. Like, we don't need to fucking waste time on that. I mean, even as a mixer, <laughs> I, I know some of my clients, to to their chagrin, I, you know, they'll send me a song and I'm, I'm not a fast mixer at all. And they'll be like, hey, you, you know, when are you doing it? I'm like, oh, I've got Monday scheduled to mix. And they'll be like, okay, cool. And I'll say, yeah, I should have something to you Monday. Monday night. And then Monday night, I'll be like, Hey, um, spent the day mixing. Not going to send you anything. Uh, went down the wrong path. I'm going to start over tomorrow. And they're like, "Huh? Okay, would you send it to me to hear?" And I'm like, "No, no. I just, I kind of, I, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to follow a path, and it, and I, I followed it, and it didn't work. I'll, I'll, I'll go back." The reason why that happens to me is because I find sometimes, and this might just be my personality, and I think other people maybe it's not quite as big of a deal, is I find if I just always trust my instinct and just go with my gut, everything just is the same. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. 
It's over 500 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. In my opinion, that's why people should not buy more gear instead of developing their ears. It's like when they they see a shiny new plug and and they buy it, they think that that suddenly their EQ choices are going to change and then everything sounds the same. And it's because the person running it didn't change. It's yeah. just a tool. We'll come back to this conversation. I want to make one note of that because you you just hit on something that I'm I'm a huge believer in. And if I, I know this isn't like a tutorial podcast, but I want to give this to your your listeners in the quarantine era that we're in right now. I was going to make a little YouTube video to show people like do this while you're while we're in quarantine. Every six months, every two months, whatever that time period is for you, for each individual, take a day. Go into it, pull up a session that you're really familiar with, go through and A, B, all of your compressor plugins. Pick two, throw the rest in your unused folder for the next three months. Yep. And then just do that every like three months. And just don't even, so when you go to your plugins list, you don't have to make any decisions. You're like, I got an 1176 and, you know, McDSP compressor bank or whatever it is that you happen to use. And you're like, okay, I got to do everything with that. And you can, but it's definitely something that, you know, I force myself to do. Unfortunately, you know, when you get mixes from other people, they've got plugins all over it. So then you got to throw them all back and do that again. But it's something, it's it's a good exercise that I think a lot of people should do. I mean, I, I know guys like me who have got quite a bit of experience. It benefits me to just be like, okay, I don't, need 14 1176 emulations. I'm going to pick the one that I like and I'm going to use it and I'm just going to use that. And I don't need, you know, 50 Fairchild, you know, whatever. Like it just, you don't need them all. To that fact, you could probably do everything with stock plugins and be just fine. But anyways, coming back to the other thing, that's something I would recommend people to do, especially when you got downtime. Like take a day, shoot out your favorite EQs, shoot out your favorite compressors, shoot out your favorite reverbs and get rid of everything else. Just put it in the unused, you know, plugin folder. I completely agree. There's something about imposing constraints that strengthens you. 100%. And even if it's, all it's doing is is just getting rid of a, another one of those billion decisions that you have to make, um, it's it's good. So going back to what we were talking about before, what were we talking about before? Something about decision making. We were talking about the billion decisions required to... Uh, to create. Yeah, I mean, there, there are those decisions where you're like, okay, yeah, we don't need to go down wrong roads. If I personally don't take chances or do something that maybe doesn't mm-hmm. feel right, then everything just sounds the same to me. Because I think in my head, I've got like the sound of perfect whatevers. Like in my head, I've got the sound of a perfect kick drum. In my head, I've got the sound of a perfect snare drum. In my head, I've got the sound of a perfect clean guitar and a perfect dirty guitar. But none of that matters in the context of a mix. It matters how it works with the mix. If I don't go down different directions, I'm going to just start chasing the sound that's in my head of all these perfect individual elements that just don't really mean anything once they're all added together. I don't know if that makes any sense. (laughs) I feel like there's a couple things here. First of all, and this is hard because I think nobody wants to fuck up, but you have to be open to fucking it up. Uh, a lot of beginners have a problem with this, but this is something that plagues people. My best my best mixes have come from fucking up 
the one before it that nobody heard? I have a theory that it's the same thing as having to write the bad songs in order to get to the good one. Um, like, I think, I think that, I don't remember who it was. It was one of the Beatles or something like that who was like, you got to get the bad songs out of your system. I feel like it's similar with mixes. Sometimes you got to get the bad ones out of your system uh, in order to get to the good one. I feel like part of it has to do with uh, the light bulb turning on in your head yeah. towards where you really understand what's needed for that project. I think sometimes... You know, you start with your instincts, but your instincts may not be 100% aligned with what that song needs at that moment in time. Yeah. Sometimes it might, but sometimes it might not. And if it's not, it's it's good to recognize that and go through it again. And it could just be that you needed basically a practice run. I mean, I do this too when, Perfect when I'm example, yeah. shooting videos too. I Sometimes I'll shoot it them three times. Yeah. First time, it's not like I didn't study what I was going to say. Something is different. By the time you go through it a couple times, it's just it just becomes more ingrained. And even though it's not, mixing isn't like performing like on an instrument or talking on camera, but I feel like it gets inside you and you start to understand what's needed in a, in a different way. A hundred percent. And exactly what you said, doing a couple different takes to kind of do practice runs, right? Whether they're practice runs or not, you, you made the perfect example of, of a being a, like a, an, playing on an instrument. It's like, why is it perfectly acceptable for me to have a singer do 20 takes or a guitar player do you know six passes or a drummer punch in the fill 30 times to get it right? But the expectation on myself is I have to, you know, pardon the pun, nail the mix the first time. Well, because people don't understand what's involved. That's why. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, and just from a technical standpoint, and this is typically what happens to me, if, if I can shed some light on kind of the technical reason as to why, that, why it happens. Shed it. What conceptually you think you need to do in order to make something happen sometimes isn't what the track will allow. For instance, like if we use the analogy of building a house and I'm like, okay, cool. I got all my materials laid out here. I've got some bricks. I got some two by fours. I got all this stuff. Cool. The homeowner really wants me to make this like two-story Cape Cod looking thing, right? And then you start putting it together and you're like, shit, I don't have enough materials to make this house two stories. Oh, okay. Fuck. I better rethink the first floor. Oh, shit. I don't have materials to make a Cape Cod. I've only got bricks. I'm going to have to make this like a fucking brick house. So I better rethink my architecture. Like there's all these things that conceptually at the beginning, the artist, the producer, me as a mixer, even if I'm just given carte blanche to do whatever I want, I might be like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fucking just, it's going to be awesome, blah, blah, blah. And I start doing it. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, this isn't going to work. It's usually the opposite. It's usually I'm given way too much stuff and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this awesome. And then realize I'm like, shit, this is not, this can't all work together the way that I want to do it. I got to rethink the approach. And I think that's where guys like, you know, CLA, who's just, who's very like instinct and just kind of go, go, go and doesn't overthink anything. Just, I think that's kind of where their experience and their 20 or 30,000 mixes really kind of comes into play is they've shortened, they've, they've kind of shortened the timeline of being like, okay, where do I want to take this? Where does it need to go? And then also being able to pivot mid mix. Yep. I have a hard time pivoting mid mix. Like I said, I get I get a sound in my head and I do everything I can to get it there and then I realize that it doesn't work and I have to start over. But then when I start over, 
I'm intimately familiar with all of the warts and all of the the moles and the dimples and everything. And I'm like, okay, cool. I know what I know what I got to do now. I think that what you're talking about goes way deeper than just mixing. So, hundred percent. One thing that I've pushed really hard on people as just a way to approach life is 10% planning, 90% execution. And the reason I make such a big deal out of it is because most people I know, besides like my business partners and people we bring on Nail the Mix and stuff, most people I know who are trying to achieve something typically will do 80% planning and 20% execution. And they'll spend all this time planning and planning and planning and thinking about how it's going to, how to make it so perfect and then not spend enough time actually working on it in order to be able to do what you just said, uh, reassess, reformulate, re whatever. If you say, if you do 10% planning, which is just enough to know what direction you want to go in, you have the vision, you set the goal, and then you get right to it. Boom, yeah. 90% execution, you're working on it. You will know that much sooner whether or not you're going down the right path or the wrong path and be able to correct. And it's true for mixing, it's true for business, it's true, it's just true, 100%. in my opinion. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, you know, I'm guilty of I'm guilty of exactly what you just described, and I will I will throw in the uh, the addition to that. If you are an 80 percent planner and 20 percent execution, by the time you get to 40 percent of any plan, you've probably come across so many obstacles. You just say fuck it and you yes. throw in the towel. Yep, that's the other reason why I push it so much is because just start the, it. <laughs> yeah, the planning. So obviously, I'm not advocating that people just like. You know, for instance, quit Free their job <laughs> without having a plan. Yeah, of you course. Know? Of course. Say they want to do this production thing for a living and fuck it, no plan. Let's just go. That's dumb too. You're right. By the time you get to about 40% of the planning, you will generally talk yourself out of it. I've done that before. Every time. The reason I push it so much also is because it's, I know how natural it is to do that. Yeah. I feel like it's in human nature uh, or in most of our natures to do that because executing can be kind of scary because it brings the possibility of failing. Yeah, Nobody wants to fail. And I don't like the self-help idea of failing's good. Failing sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but you gotta be but you gotta be okay with the fact that it sucks and you have to go through it. I feel like the 80% planning thing is just a it's just a really, really clever and veiled form of procrastination. I I would have to agree with that as well. And I, I find when I'm, you know, honest with myself and I'm procrastinating about something, that's typically kind of what like I'm 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 one of those people where I don't I don't like sit around on the couch and be like, ah, eh, fuck it, I'll get to it later. Like I, I, I'll distract myself with other shit to make myself feel like I'm working towards something and be like, oh man, yeah, I've been, I've been working on that and been doing that, whatever. And then you, you, when you call bullshit on yourself, you're like, yeah, I've just really been fucking distracting myself from doing what really needs to be done. And it's in exactly what you said. That's, that's what it is. I'll be like, oh no, I was working on that. I was thinking of this and I was thinking of that. Or, you know, when it comes to mixing or production, be like, yeah, you know, I was refining my template. I was trying out new plugins. Uh, you know, I was, you know, doing all the stuff that I preached to do, but I was doing it in the at the wrong time. It's delusion. It's delusional. Totally. totally. And it's so easy to do. Guitar players do this too by looking up gear, for instance. Like they'll get on those on those gear review sites and just yep. like 
talk about amp sims and amps and all that stuff rather than working on their right hand picking, which <laughs> makes more of a difference in your tone than any fucking amp you'll ever use. Yep. But that actually takes investment and you might suck at it. But while this planning stuff gives you this weird false sense of productivity, kind of, yeah. have you ever heard, I forget who it was. I think it was the founder of CD Baby or something. He said, don't ever tell people your plans because what happens is, your subconscious doesn't differentiate between the fact that you did it or didn't do it. So if you're talking about it and you're getting excited about it, something in you already feels accomplished for having done it and it'll stop you from doing it, which Interesting. I, I actually have found that to be kind of true. A lot of stuff that I've done, uh, I've done in secret or not really talking to too many people about it also because they never fucking get it until <laughs> until I'm done with it uh, so there's there's no way they'll ever understand but also just to the point of starting before things are perfect like man if we you are and nail the mix had waited until we have what we have now gear wise like have this like this the stream box that's like over $10,000 and like all these nice cameras and like great microphones and like staff and a custom website. But, yeah. and that's great. And I know a lot of people would want that. But when we started, it was just me, Joey, and Joel and some GoPros and like shitty PC that we built and a really, really starter bullshit crap site you just have to get started yeah and the sooner you get started like we were talking about with the mixing it's like the sooner you kind of dig into it the sooner you can figure out what the direction really needs to be and what needs to happen you know like trying to figure out all the forks in the road before they happen it's like well i mean again you know you don't want to just be hasty with decision making but like why why stress out about four scenarios that are like five steps in if you know, you went a direction that doesn't even come close to those four scenarios. Like once you get started, just deal with, you know, a couple moves ahead as opposed to, you know, the infinite amount of moves ahead. Have you heard of the concept of the black swan? Remind me. Here's the definition of Wikipedia. The black swan theory or theory of black swan events is a metaphor that describes an event that comes as a surprise has a major effect and is often inappropriately rationalized after the fact with the benefit of hindsight. Mm. The term is based on an ancient saying that presumed black swans did not exist, a saying that became reinterpreted to teach a different lesson after black swans were discovered in the wild. Anyways, point being that the problem that is actually going to fuck you up is the one you don't even know exists. Yep. And there's no way that you can plan for it exactly right so you just have to get started because yeah. there's going to be things that no matter how much planning you do, there's going to be things you did not think of, you didn't even know to think of them, that are going to get in your path and trip you up. And so those are the actual problems that you have to solve, whether it's mixing or business or whatever. Those are the actual problems or the things you didn't think of. If, if you already thought of them and you know how to solve them, then what are you doing? Yeah. Just fucking solve them. And that goes to another point of we obviously want to be constantly improving, you know, wh whatever it is in our lives, going through the process and doing, just doing anything, going through the process and having to get to those decisions and being able to make those decisions fast and, and being able to 
kind of refine your instincts. And that's ultimately going to make everything else better, easier, more productive, more effective, mm-hmm. whatever it is down the road. Even if you did have perfect foresight, and even if you planned it out perfectly, by the time you got to the end of that, you'd actually just kind of be the same as when you started. You wouldn't have actually really owned your craft or your skills or whatever it is that you're talking about, right? I mean, to make a bad analogy, I love golf, right? To make a really bad analogy, like there's golfers who can go on a driving range and just hit the most perfect shots time after time after time after time after time, right? They're on a flat level lie, nothing changes, the visual's the same, the wind's predictable, it's the same position on the court, everything's the same. That has nothing to do with being out on a golf course. So every shot's completely different. So what you wanna do is you wanna figure out how to improve being able to adapt to whatever the situation is. The only way you're gonna be able to do that is by doing it. Absolutely. So you can plan it all out and you can, you can be right and get to the end of it, but your skill set, or your mental sharpness or your refining your instincts or whatever it happens to be, you haven't, you haven't actually, like yeah, you got the end product, but the next time you wanna do that again, you're just banking that you hope you guessed the plan right again. Yeah, well, what happens if you get served a dish with a bunch of different issues? I, I've always said that being a great producer or mixer equals being a, a great problem solver. Obviously, on top of the fact of yeah. having, having great people skills and all, all, yada, 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 all that shit. But really, in order to be great at this, you need to be a great problem solver. And yeah. Every session is going to have its own unique problems. There are no perfect sessions. Well, something that makes me laugh sometimes is we'll get people in Nail the Mix who are brand new to... I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> okay, Keep going. <laughs> I mean, we have people who span the range from peers who are just in there because they want to see what colleague does yep. to people who are at the very beginning and then a lot in the middle who maybe have only worked with program drums yep. and suddenly they're getting Meshuggah tracks or Fallout Boy tracks and the crazy stuff that that is totally not realistic for where they're at in their yep. careers and yep. we give the tracks as they're given to us. I mean, we uh, all we do is uh, rename them and mm-hmm number them so that people could just bring them right into the session and they li- and they're all easily importable but we don't fix anything. Yep. It is what it is. And so if there is a bad edit, the bad edit's there. If anything's fucked up, it's there. And some people will be like, "I thought that you guys were supposed to be giving us pro tracks or like <laughs> have that kind of, have that kind of attitude." It's like, "Buddy, this is how it goes. There is no such thing." Fucking As wild perfect- west. <laughs> yeah, except for maybe a Mutt Lang session. Maybe those are perfect. But those might be perfect. But yeah, they, yeah, they, maybe. But the whole thing of it is that these people who mixed the actual version solved these problems. Yeah, you're gonna have to solve these problems too, and they're always going to be something different. And uh, whenever I see that uh, that attitude, I'm like, buddy. Uh, You've got problems that go beyond audio because your mindset is completely wrong. And yeah. I don't, I'm not, don't try to insult them or anything. I just try to help them understand that actually, this is how it is in the real world. You might think that there were no problems because you love the final mix, but that's just a testament to how great of a mixer and what a great production and 
all that great mastering job. That's a testament to how good these people are, but they had to solve these problems too. Yeah. Is that where you thought I was going with this? A little bit. Like you, you took a, a definitely a more of a, of a bird's eye kind of overview of it. I thought you were going to go like you get the beginners being like, you know, okay, so what, what, what number is EQ got to be set at? Oh yeah, we get those too. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm not going to defend those people because it's not defendable. They just don't know yet. But here, okay, so I'll comment to that. I work with a lot of producers who have... 20 number one rock songs, you know, just big albums, platinum records. And I will still get those guys being like, they'll send me a mix. They'll send me their rough mix. I'll take their rough mix and I'll do my thing and I'll send it back. They'll be like, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the vocal, I think we need to, you know, get the vocal maybe a little bit brighter. So like when I, in my rough mix, I had the vocal, you know, the, the high EQ was set to like maybe like 10. So I'd say maybe try to like 12. And I'm like, okay, you, you like make hit records, but they <laughs> even think, and I'm like, but they don't realize that like my master bus might be adding eight dB of top end. So twelve, what twelve? And I'll and I and I'll, I'll without 12 being what? yeah totally twelve dB of top of of ten k. And I'm like, yeah, but that's irrelevant in my mix because I've got so much other shit going on, right? Even if it was the exact same. I got other stuff. Like it's just it, it's irrelevant. And I'll say to them, they'll be like, "Yeah, so maybe try like six point four on the you know the threshold." And I'm like, "Fuck, don't like that doesn't matter." So I'm even telling this to like producers. Now that being said, where music has like from when I started to where I'm at now, eighty percent of the producers I work with, their background is writing being in a band, if not both, versus when I started, all the producers used to be engineers. Yeah, hardcore engineers, like real engineers, yeah. Totally, so that's where there's, there's the discrepancy. So like the generation now, like I feel like I might've been maybe the last generation of guys who came up under like the old guard or the old model of like the mm -hmm. studio hierarchy, which I'm so, 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 so grateful for because I feel like it's easier for me to kind of learn kind of the new approach, which is less restrictive than for guys who only know the new thing and, and are just like fucking a little bit lost in the woods. Like for me, there was such a, a strict, you know, etiquette, hierarchy way of doing things. It was, it was very much more black and white because of what, not, whether it be the technology or whether it just be the way that the business operated or the people in the room. Now it's just, it, it literally is wild west, free for all, right? Yeah. So a lot of the people now are self-taught. They learned with presets. They learned with plugins. They don't know any of the theoretical background of what they're doing. It's just a lot of, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean it in a bad way because these guys do great work, but it's just a lot of guessing. Yeah, I've been saying this for a while. I've always thought that the most dangerous mixer or producer out there is one who has the old school upbringing, but who has fully adopted the new tools. So, because you know, some of those, I call them dinosaurs. Some of the dinosaurs <laughs> are very resistant to the new way of doing things. And in some ways their material doesn't evolve with the times. Like it's yeah. still technically awesome, but it's not bleeding edge. And yep. I feel like it, and I mean, and there are also laptop dudes who are doing great work. Yep. So we just had someone on Nail the Mix. Uh, his name is Buster Odelhorn, uh, who is totally new school. Yeah. 
and his work sounds godly, but he's like the definition of the modern version. But I've always thought that, man, the people who have that old school background, man, if they adopted the new stuff wholeheartedly, they would be unstoppable. Yeah. Combining those two disciplines would make them unstoppable. We try really, really hard to try to instill at least some of that old school work ethic and understanding. Yeah. But there's only so much, there's only so much of that you can do without actually physically being in a location that, that I think that that's a big part of the traditional uh, way that an engineer learns is by operating these massive, I know it's not about the gear, but the operation of it played a huge role uh, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And the best example that I can give to kind of from just from like a gear scenario is a synthesizer. And the reason why I use this as an example is if you take any synthesizer plugin, okay, let's say Massive or Omnisphere or whatever, and I'm just, this is just an example. You could apply this to any technical part of the process. You can literally, with just about any plugin synthesizer, you can make just about any sound that any other synthesizer can make. Mm -hmm. Close, relatively. Like, yeah, the filters are going to sound a little different. The oscillators might sound a little different. They might have different wavetables, but you're going to be able to get close, right? I constantly have clients, producers, artists being like, hey, man, looking for a new synth. What, what synth should I get? I'm like, dude, you have Omnisphere. You don't need another synth ever. Learn how to fucking use it. And the problem is, because we're all software-based now, you don't have to know how to use it. The first producer I worked with when I came to LA, he started his career as like a keyboard guy, but more importantly, he was like on the bleeding edge of music technology, whether it be samplers, for better or worse, Beat Detective was basically like his concept that they built for him. Pretty revolutionary, I'd say. 100%, right? But he yeah. was like on the bleeding edge of that stuff, which I, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. But I remember when I first came to LA, he had a polyfusion synthesizer, which was the size of a bookshelf. Like it was 10 feet tall, six feet <laughs> wide, shit all over the place, right? Looks like a NASA project. Absolutely. And it's it's almost more, I think, I mean, in his studio, it was more of an art piece. We plugged it in. We used it every once in a while. I'd get fucking shocked every time I tried to use it. So I tried to stay away from it. But the point of it was, if you wanted to use that thing, there was no shortcut. You had to know how to use it. You couldn't turn it on and put it in, and and just play a keyboard and a sound's going to come out. You had to start fucking patching stuff in, right? And these virtual synthesizers, they have all that stuff, but it's just already pre-patched. So nobody really knows how to use it. Yes. And that's kind of the problem, right? And I'm not saying that don't use presets or that presets are bad, but the problem with the current technology is there's not only do you not have to learn it, but also when I tr when I try to go in and learn, you know, how to make my own patches with something like Omnisphere, which I fucking love all the Spectrosonic stuff. I'm not dissing this at all. But at least with the Polyfusion, you've got this big, massive thing in front of you. You can, you can plug thing in and be like, okay, I'm going to follow this cable down. I'm going to plug it here. Okay, what's that? Okay, cool. I'm going to grab it's, it's very, it's easy to try it out, right? With Whereas I find with some of the, like the plugins, it's hard to kind of like, you got to like, page menus and everything's really small and you know even with like uh, reason where you'd like grab the patch cable and you're like okay I'm trying <laughs> like it's just it's clumsy right it's just the fact that it's not a physical thing is clumsy and it's almost the same way that some of this gear is like knowing how to use a console learning how to use a console I was about to say that 
is easier than l learning how to use, like if you looked at one of my mix sessions, my mix session, talk about a dinosaur, my mix session looks like a fucking dinosaur. I still have it set up like a SSL 4000G or E or whatever. Like it's, it's a very like archaic setup in the sense of like, I've got an SSL channel across every track, whether I use it or not, it's just there ready to go. And I have my auxiliary set up the same way that they show up on a board. Like it's very archaic and it's something I'm working on to kind of become a little more new school because there's definitely limitations that I'm imposing that I shouldn't be. But anyways, it's a lot easier to learn how to use a console when you have the big thing in front of you than it is to learn how to use the virtual version of it. Man, so when I first started learning, like... 2000, 2001, there were several years that I tried to get information online on how to do this. And I think there was some online school in Detroit that had some info. Mm -hmm. And I tried learning a console through online and it just, <laughs> it, it just didn't work. No. And then I remember the the first time, like sometime in 2005, producer friend of mine bought an SSL and I had just been working in DAWs for the past five years. And he invited me over to, to mix a record uh, that I was doing, like my first signed band. Yep. Man, I did not know what the fuck was going on. Um, and it was a very strong moment. I, I still, I'm still faster on a DAW, but because of that, I decided to learn how to use one. And I felt like learning a console and then also... Even if you can't have a console, having a patch bay and having to think that out, yeah. I feel like the example you're giving of the synth is the best example, but it's also the most unrealistic. But something very realistic for people with home studios, yeah, it's a patch bay. Yep. Yeah, patch bay with a few pieces of gear. First of all, you got to wire it right, first and foremost, or nothing's going to happen. And second of all, it forces you to think within the constraints of what you've got. Like, you can't clone your 1176. If you've got one, you've got one. Yeah, pick what you're going to use it on or bounce it out or do yeah. something, but yeah. But you have to make decisions. Um, I also don't think presets are necessarily a bad thing either, especially if you're writing or especially sometimes... Sometimes the most simple solution to something is the best. And there are some cases where you just put on the reverb you like and it just sounds awesome. Totally. I catch myself in that weird headspace of like, you know, don't use a preset, don't use a preset. Or I have to make my own presets. Like I can't be like one that came with it. And it's, and it's total bullshit. You know, the fucking, the two voices, one on either side of your shoulder, right? It's total bullshit. If you're going to believe whatever works, then 100%. whatever works has to actually include whatever works. Totally. So I've, I, and, that, and that's something, you know, I used to be full SSL. I can't mix in the box and I couldn't mix in the box. And I had to, I had to figure out a way to trick myself into mixing in the box. And now I won't go back. Like, honestly, if you said, hey, Chris, I'll, you know, I'll pay for whatever studio you want, go mix on a, you know, SSL, I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'll stay in my studio. I'm good. I wouldn't want to. But there was a time when I, I literally, like, I had mental barriers, like subconscious mental barriers that wouldn't let me mix in the box with a mouse or whatever. And I got over them. You're not alone. 
Yeah, and I had to trick myself. But again, talking about being aware of a situation and dealing with reality, I knew what the reality was. So I dealt with reality the best I could. And I addressed, instead of just being like, oh, I just got to keep doing it. I'm like, no, no, what's what's blocking me from doing this? And I and I figured those things out. And it had nothing to do with mixing. It, it was all- What was it? Uh, for me, so there's two things. I mean, the obvious one that you hear a lot of people talk about is tactile, right? Be having something to touch. Mm-hmm. Like for a lot of people who have come from- the old studio, that that's an important thing. I, I know guys who don't know what the knob of an 1176 feels like. Yeah, or they, they don't want to write automation with a mouse. They want to feel it. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So there's tactile. So I started mixing in the box and I you know it, it was an it was an expense, but I was working on a project that luckily afforded me to do it. Uh I, I got a D control. Yep. There you go. Okay, so that solved that problem. The next problem that I had, you know, I'm a big proponent of Waves plugins. I love those guys. They do awesome work. And I, I give them a lot of credit because their their SSL e-channel was the other thing that got me over the hump. Again, talking about reality and cutting through the bullshit that's in your brain, for me, it was less about what it sounded like and more about what it looked like. So for me, to be able to turn a knob with my hand and have a plug-in on my screen that looks like something familiar that I've been staring at for 10 years enabled me to get rid of the mental bullshit that was in my way. Now it's transitioned to a point where I still do that. I still like it. I still like the sound of it. I like the, I've become so accustomed to it. I do like the sound of it. But I, I, could, I could very easily do a mix in the box with a mouse and fab filter and be totally fine. Do I like that? No. My preference is still to be on a control surface with some sort of SSL 4K emulation for a variety of reasons. But that literally, I could, I, I had a mental barrier that I could not get past. Everything I did, I either hated the sound of or I hated doing until I fixed those two problems. And neither of them had to do with sound and neither of them had to do with music. One of them was a feel and one of them was a visual. You know, I think that it's very awesome that you shared that because on the outside and even in your own head, but outside of the problem, you could tell yourself or someone could think, well, those are bullshit reasons. Like the way it looks, who cares? But it matters because if you're being dis... It mattered to me. Exactly. It all matters. If it's affecting you, it matters. And if it's something that's preventing you from being able to do your best work, yeah, then... It fucking matters. And I, I know that, for instance, I'm DAW agnostic. I don't give a fuck cool. what DAW people use. Love that. But I don't like Reaper very much. And the reason I don't like it isn't because its users are fucking annoying. It's <laughs> it's because the <laughs> it's because the plugins, the stock plugins look like 2003 AOL or something, or like SoundForge in 2001. Yeah, yeah. Like it makes me feel like I'm using something from 20 years ago. And sure, I'm sure you could move the sliders to make it work great. One of the best mastering engineers in the world that I know uses Reaper and whatever. It yeah. works for him. But the way that it looks, it was the reason that I could never fuck with it. There's certain plugins that something about their GUI made it hard for me to think. Yes. It's not that I didn't understand what the knobs did. I understood what the knobs did, but there's something about it that got in the way of me thinking. And so I would 
gravitate towards ones where it just would come naturally. But to be able to identify that is what really, really matters because it's going to be different for everybody. And I think lots of times people are afraid to admit what's blocking them when it's something seemingly superficial. 100%. And the sooner you understand that and can deal with it, the better off you're going to be. And I've, I agree with you 100%. And I've had this conversation with, I've had this conversation with other producers, other mixers, plug-in companies, software developers. I've had this conversation a couple times and we've gotten like really deep into, there are like studies uh, as to your auditory perception based off of visual stimulus. It's a fact. It's an absolute fact that your ear, your brain will make your ears hear something based off of what you're looking at. So being aware of this and under, wanting to understand more about it, I kind of dug in a little bit and I am 100% convinced. You will not convince me otherwise. Well, let's say 99.9 because I can always be convinced otherwise if there's data to support it. But yeah. as of right now, I am positively convinced for me, I can't talk about for you. I can't talk about for you know anybody else. But for me, what I am looking at, what I'm staring at, the overall, all the senses combining is going to, even if it's just a little bit, is going to tweak what my brain is per perceiving my ears hearing. So for me, the visual interface of software of a plug-in of kind of just about anything is is very is very important to me and it affects so much more than just oh it looks cool like and that was the thing with the, with the SSL plugin like that SSL plugin i mean i've done i have done ab tests to SSL boards and i've you know when you know plugin alliance come come came out with theirs and UAD came out with theirs like i do they all sound do, a little different for sure yeah and and I do care about what stuff sounds like. I'm not throwing that to the wind. But I'll tell you right now, when I first started mixing in the box, if Avid's EQ7 was wrapped in that Waves SSL channel, I still would have been able to be like, fuck, this sounds great. I believe it. But if I had to use the Avid EQ7 plugin, I'd be like, I want to fucking kill myself. <laughs> I'll pay out of my own pocket to go fucking mix at an SSL studio. Like that's literally for me, like it impacts it so much. So I've done tests with people where it's kind of like in the old school, you'd have that piece of gear that wasn't patched in. You just go and flick the switch and be like, people are like, fuck, that sounds great. Yep. You know, they're like, yeah, we need, the vocal just sounds, uh, need, just needs a little, you know, a little excitement. You'd be like, oh, cool. I'll go turn the exciter on. Or just uh, send them back the exact same mix. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> only the problem. Flip the left go. and the right. <laughs> They're like, dude, sounds so much better just because the stuff's coming out of different speakers. No, but like it's one of those things where your brain plays tricks on your ears. I've done the test where I've taken, you know, like if a new plugin comes out and, you know, if like we use 1176 plugins, take three 1176 plugins by different manufacturers. You all kind of get them sounding very, very, very similar. You render them out so that way now you can't see anything, right? And you can basically what you can switch audio, mm -hmm. leave the audio playing, but have have the visual switch. And even if the audio is not playing, and even if sometimes if you know the audio isn't changing, but the visuals changing, you think you start hearing differences. I have the perfect way that people listening, if you don't have access to gear, the way that you can see that this is correct right now is uh, go to edit some drums. And make sure that it's a good edit, but don't don't consolidate. Listen to it and look at it at the same time so you can see the line, the cut line, okay? 
then close your eyes and do it again. And it's astounding how when you're looking at the cuts, you will think you're hearing clicks and pops that aren't, you th you'll think you're hearing bad edits. And then you close your eyes and it's fine. Yeah. So yeah, if you don't have access to hardware, go try that and your mind will be blown by how true this is. I've done this, man, I've been doing this thing for years because like I started using Kempers uh, in 2013 before they came out and stuff. And yep. I remember the Kemper was a, a very controversial topic. Uh, the reason I had access to one was I was working with a guy named Jason Sukoff who's in a wheelchair and uh, Andy Sneep got like a pre-release model and he was like, hey, pro tip, this might make your situation a lot easier. I'll hook you up with them, get a Kemper. So we yeah. got Kempers. He got one, I got one. Then we just profiled every single amp there. But for the next couple of years, people would come in and be very against using it. And so I would reamp their uh, their guitar through like, the real 5150 with the recto cab 57, the standard, and then also that same setup modeled. And I'd make them, I'd be like, which one's which? Which one do you think's the Kemper? And I'd say nine out of 10 times they guessed wrong. I've been saying this a lot on the podcast lately, but I think that the best way to win a musical argument or production argument is by playing something for somebody Absolutely. rather than telling them about it. 100%. Make them hear it in a way that's unbiased so they don't know what they're actually hearing. Then you can talk about it. We did this on a Nail the Mix 2 uh, with Forrester Savelle. Um, I believe it was February 2018. He's now in the box, but he was an SSL hardware kind of guy. Yep. And he actually mixed really fast, so we had some time left over. We were in this really nice room with everything. So the mix that he did was like 90% hardware because they had the full UAD suite. They had everything. We were like, why don't we uh, shoot this out against the real thing? Because we have the exact same stuff. Yeah. Let's see. Like, did you guys do the settings the same or did you, did you let them mix it just by ear or how did you guys? Just by ear. That, yeah. that was the key actually. Yeah. Done by ear. He was able to get them to sound indistinguishable from each other. Yeah. But the settings were different. So yep. if you try to match the settings, they're not going to sound the same. So, yeah. But that's even true from one piece of gear to the next. Like two, two of the same model 1176 made, you know, an hour apart might sound different. So that's, yep. that's true regardless of plug in or hardware. But yeah, we're able to make it sound, when I say indistinguishable, I mean, indistinguishable, just had slightly different settings. And it's not what I was expecting to happen. It's pretty incredible. I've witnessed, when I first got into the business, I, I witnessed, uh, when I, I don't know, I was assisting or maybe I was tracking, a mixing engineer who we got we had hired to do the mixes on a, on a project that we had just finished, mixed on, I don't know what it was, SSL, maybe been like a 9K or something. And then for whatever reason, Months down the road, we had to go back and do a remix and, or like not a recall, but we had to like mix it again. But there was, you know, a couple arrangement changes, a couple little things, but we couldn't get back into that room. And we were going to mix the rest of the record at that time. And they went into another room where there was an 88R, which is a Neve, modern Neve, but is, you know, basically kind of like the equivalent of the 9K at the time, but SSL and a Neve. 
And at the end of the day, you put put the two mixes next to each other. And there was very minimal outboard gear. Like, yeah, they were using, you know, 960 Lexicon and some Poltex and some 1176s or whatever. But it was amazing how similar they sounded. And me being young and still thinking, oh, the gear, the gear, the gear. It's such a small piece of the pie that once all the decisions were made and you're tweaking to what he was, the mix engineer was tweaking to what he wanted to hear, he's going to keep doing whatever he's got to do, the, obviously the settings are completely different because it's a completely different console. But when you would flip between the two mixes, they sounded a little different, but you would expect, based off of all the propaganda that we get fed on a daily basis, you'd figure the difference between the SSL and the Neve would be like chocolate and vanilla. And it was more no. like, more. it was more like one was like 72% dark chocolate and the other one was like 80% dark chocolate. And honestly, it's just a matter of like, how bitter do you like it? You know, it's like, that's all it is. I think that's a great way to put it. On the topic of propaganda... I didn't mean to make it that controversial, but... <laughs> no, no but, no, but that's what it is. I, so I think that this goes back to what I was saying about talking about a musical idea is kind of a shitty way to get something across as opposed to showing somebody what it actually sounds like. And so I think that a lot of people will read online about like, the characteristics of like certain converters, like burls, burls will give you better low end somehow or something. Uh, they'll you know they'll read about yeah API versus Neve, like all that stuff, or they'll talk about the uh, the harmonics that APIs add when you push them hard or whatever. What people don't understand if they've never used the gear is that sure that stuff might be kind of true, but really. You're talking about like the last 2%. And so those differences only, only matter if everything else, the other 98% is already taken care of. It matters for people who are competing best of the world against best in the world. And they need that 2% difference that makes all the difference. And it's not that one piece of gear is better than the other. It's just whatever you do your best work on. Yeah. But in my opinion, this stuff only matters for the top of the top of the top when they're trying to differentiate one or 2%. And then at the end of the day, it even doesn't matter then because if they're that good, they'll make anything work. So I agree with you 100%. And I always, again, being a little bit of a visual person, I always try to describe it as like, yeah, it's like a pie, right? Okay, so you're going to record an acoustic guitar. You've got a pie. Divvy that pie up into what really matters the most. And at the end of the day, the converter, that slice of the pie, that's the converter, you're not going to be able to see it. That's so funny. Did you come up with the pie thing? I mean, that's just how I've always thought about it. I'm just wondering because... uh, And that's how I describe it to other people too. Are you familiar with Creative Live? Yep. By any chance? So uh, right now, the director of operations for URM, he's the guy who, with my help, started the audio channel and gotcha. created live back in yep. 2013. I was like the first person to do an audio course. I've done the most on there. And like that's kind of what led to URM. But we were thinking of ways to describe things, like how much matters. Yeah. Like in a guitar tone or a drum tone, we came up with the tone pie. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it makes total sense. Yeah, like 60% drummer, like yep. 20% head choice, like all that stuff. But it, yeah, the tone pie, that's what I was wondering. I, I, I hadn't seen that, but it's not how I'd always envisioned it. And I think it's easy for people to understand. Like, and it puts, it puts things in perspective. And even sometimes I do it too. Like if I'm, if I'm looking to buy a new piece of gear. And for me, 
and even for other people, unless you've got infinite amounts of money or just you're just like independently wealthy, I mean, there should be a little bit of consideration given to like what something costs. For instance, if you can give me that little sliver of the pie for 300 bucks, I'm gonna buy it. If that sliver of the pie costs me $9,000 because I gotta get new converters, fucking keep it <laughs> and I'll take my wife to Hawaii. Like, you know, fuck it. It's not worth it. So you gotta, you gotta kind of factor that in. I've always just, it's a very easy way to look at something when you're, when you, when you visualize a, you know, the tone pie and you're like stressing out over that little tiny sliver and you're just like, it just kind of, when, when you can visualize that or you see it on paper, you just kind of put your mind at ease. you be like, fuck it. Don't, don't think about it anymore. Move on. Now I will play devil's advocate. I agree with you hundred percent, but I'll, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute on the, uh, on the API harmonics or the, you know, whatever, the tubes or the digital versus analog, whatever. I'll play, I'll play devil's advocate for just a second, and I'm going to go back to something that we touched upon a little earlier. I do give a lot of credence to the final product also being attributable to the experience. Oh, yeah. And if I find, like, plugins for me, I'll tell you right now, like, just, again, cutting through the bullshit, and like looking at myself from an objective standpoint, I'll tell you right now, buying a new plugin for me is 90% inspiration or excitement to try something new and probably 10% actual audio benefit. So like when a new plugin comes out, and it's a very low cost to entry, right? When we were buying hardware or like a microphone or something like that, or even a, like guitars, you know, like for me, guitars, like, like I said, I'm a, I'm a fucking hack guitar player, but I just having a nice guitar, like sitting in the room, like makes me excited to want to go and get to work. So although I might spend some money on a guitar that I'll be like, fuck, I haven't played that thing in like six months. And that's like, you know, $3,000 guitar that's sitting tied up there. But every day I walk into the studio and it's sitting that there and it makes me excited. It's kind of cool. That added zero to any of my productions. It didn't get plugged in. Why would you go spend the money on it? Well, because it inspired me. It made me excited to want to go into the studio. And then when I look around, I see the, you know, whatever. So I think sometimes gear and plugins is, can, be the, can have the same effect. Whereas I know like, you know, if, if, if I have to do a mix and maybe, you know, I mean, I typically try not to work on stuff that I'm not excited about, but, you know, we all get, we all every once in a while, you know, are like, oh, okay, I just got to go knock this thing out. I'm not like that pumped up about it. But if I know I'm like, oh, dude, I just got this new thing that sounds exactly the same as fucking everything else. I'm going to be like, cool, I'm going to go, I'm going to go mix through this thing and knock out this mix. And all of a sudden now I just got through a mix that I really didn't, I was dreading doing simply because I was doing it through a new converter that added 0. 0, you know, 0. 0.0001% difference. But it inspired me and got me excited to go and do something or inspired me to do something different maybe. Like if, again, if you have a piece of gear being like, oh, cool, I got this new whatever, I'm going to put the vocal through it. Is it that much different than it would have been if I didn't have it? No, mm -hmm. but it kind of got me excited. And if you're excited and you're happy and you're, you're, you're into what you're doing, ultimately that's going to get a better result. There is something to it, but you got to recognize what it is. Oh, and, yeah, and that's absolutely. where I tie the dollar amount to it. I'm like, oh, so-and-so's having a sale on plugins? You know, you, you said something uh, a few minutes ago and I was, I was going to ask you, I'm like, can I talk shit on a plugin company? But I'm not going to. Well, oh, when you were talking about Reaper, I was having a problem with uh, manufacturers plugins who claim to have the absolute best sounding and they do sound really good. I'm not going to say the name. They do sound fucking amazing, but they just don't work on a system. They eat up way too much CPU. And I bought one and I contacted the company I was going back and forth with, with them. I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, this keeps crashing my system. And their response to me was, Use Reaper. 
<laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> That's hilarious. And then when I replied back to that with, I'm like, well, I'm a Pro Tools guy. I've got an HDX rig. I've been on Pro Tools for 20 odd years. I said, I'm not really into it, blah, blah. They didn't even reply back to the email with any with anything other than instructions on how to relinquish my license and get a refund. I'm like, awesome customer service, boys. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. I don't think you were playing devil's advocate, by the way. I, I completely agree with you. Whatever it takes to get you to do your best work. And yes, when I tell people to not succumb to gear acquisition syndrome or whatever, yeah, I don't mean never buy new stuff. It's more just don't trick yourself. Don't trick yourself. Yeah, you get cut through the bullshit. Yeah, cut through the bullshit. But it's also true that we as humans get bored yep. uh, and variety is spice of life type thing. If it's If we're always doing the exact same thing through the exact same tools, we might not be that interested yeah. because our brain will just will just kind of check out, phone yep. it in. And that's the worst thing you can possibly do. So if having a new tool helps you not be checked out, then that's wonderful. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you just got to, you got to know what, what it is you're, you know, you're buying it for or what it is. Like you said, don't, don't trick yourself. Don't bullshit. Um, and then just be realistic, be objective. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, ultimately kind of like the overall overreaching concept is just be objective. Easier said than done, but very, yeah. I'd like to think that I've gotten decent at it, but how have you, uh, how do you go about maintaining your objectivity? I mean, I think it kind of depends what we're talking about a little bit. The simplest answer in life, I kind of take a lot of pride in being objective. Regardless of what it is, you know, if a situation comes up, whether or not it's, you know, a, a gear acquisition or a part in a song or, you know, a, a debate with my wife, I take pride in being objective. So I'm going to go the extra step to kind of remove myself and look at it from the other side as best as possible. And like, I, I'll, I'll, I'm very cognizant of that. And I, that's something, like I said, I like, I pride myself on that just in life in general. It's hard to be objective. I mean, we, we typically, humans are typically kind of selfish people. So we, we're going to want to look at things in the, from the angle of whatever, whatever makes our case the strongest or whatever's going to benefit us the most. So it's hard to kind of do that. I think talking specifically about music production, I think you just, you got to strip away whatever it is to the, like, to the bare essence of what your what that thing is. So if it is a piece of gear, you know, like if it's a mic pre, I'm going to stress out and spend a day, A, being, you know, Neve clones. Okay, how do you be objective about that? Okay, well, first of all, I probably wouldn't spend a day shooting out Neve clones and I wouldn't, you know, I typically wouldn't, you know, get, get too far down that that hole to begin with. But if you're going to do it, remove all the variables except for what the essence of that is. So if it all if all it really is is what makes your mic sound best, okay, don't look at the mic preamps. Make sure you don't know which one's which. Make sure you're listening to the same performance going through everything. Like to remove all of the variables to the yep. essence of what it is you're doing. And the same thing with a song. Like, I mean, I, from a production standpoint, it's amazing, especially talking about modern production. Um, I have to fight, like literally fight. And sometimes it's not the better way to do it, but I have to fight bands or artists to not fully flush out production on a song before it's even written. That's a, that's a toughie sometimes. 
Yeah, so so talk about being objective. Man, you can fool yourself into thinking you got a good song when it sounds good. When I say sound, like like sonically, like fuck kick drum, drums are fucking huge. We got superior drummer and got all these samples and fucking got axe effects with Mesa 2C plus fucking awesome sound and we're like, "Wow, this is rocking," you know? Even even just one guy, you got trillion bass getting that fucking hardcore sound and it's just everything sounds great. And you're like, fuck, this is good. And you're like, actually the song sucks, but it sounds pretty cool, right? So to be objective about the song, sometimes you got to kind of strip it down. Like the essence, it, the song doesn't matter what the snare drum sounds like. It kind of doesn't, right? If we're talking about the song. Yep. So, let's, so let's strip away that shit for a second and make sure we got a good song. I guess as an overall concept, the way that I try to stay objective is just like literally get rid of all of the variables except for the thing that matters. And then if you're having a hard time deciding, then you can start throwing back some of the variables. For instance, plugins. If you find three plugins that when you've done blind, you know, double blind tests, you can't tell the difference between them, pick the one that you like the interface better. And if you got two of yep. them where the interface is you're like, oh, I like them equally the same. Pick whatever one's cheaper. Pick whatever one's Here's something I tr I definitely want to preach. Not sound not to preach too much. Preach away. Support the companies of the shit that you like. Okay, if that makes sense. Okay, so like, if there's four eleven seventy six plugins, and they all sound the same, they all look the same, and you're like, I could use any one. And if they're all priced about the same, support the company that you think is doing the best work or you think is the best company or you like the people and you want to support them. Like it's amazing how many people don't think about that. And especially when it comes to software is, is probably a little bit different, but like hardware, I mean, some of the margins on these hardware companies is so tiny and they, they need to sell so many to make any money and to keep doing it. And it's like, do you want these companies to be in business five years from now? Do you want them to make new products? Do you want them to invest in a new a new thing, then support them. And you can support them by buying their stuff. Like once you've pared down all the other stuff, be cognizant of like who you're buying this stuff from because I think that matters. I, I like that a lot, actually. Nobody thinks about that. As a matter of fact, I know that they don't. I think it, people who aren't involved in the making of a product, just like they're not involved in the making of whatever record, they don't know. They don't know what went into it and they don't know how many resources were expended or how hard it is to keep it up and multiplied across their entire product line. It's a lot more than people appreciate. Yeah. I think often the creation of products is is kind of taken for granted. Very much. I completely, completely, completely agree with you. I wish people would think about that more. Um, I have heard this weird argument. I've heard it towards uh, online learning, but also towards plugins that some people think that it doesn't matter because you can't hold it, which I get I get in the tactile way. You were talking about how it's better for you to have something you can actually touch. Yeah. But that, that's like a personal preference thing. But 100%. What they mean is that it's not a legitimate product, Yeah, which is, I don't know how they can possibly think that. Well, when I've had this conversation with other people, like I, mean, I, I get a lot of you know colleagues, clients, you know whomever, just at, like asking for advice on certain things, whether they're putting studios together or you know they're like, hey, I'm I'm trying to mix my own demo here. What should I do? Whatever. And if I point them in the direction of software or hardware or whatever, where they need to make a purchase. And the conversation comes up, they're like, well, which one should I get? And when I've kind of dug into this conversation, the best way that I think about it that kind of 
I don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily address that in its sense, but it kind of touches upon it is pick a software company. Like if you buy a Waves plugin for $100, think about that less about I gave that Waves $100 and they gave me a plugin back. If you're going to think about this plugin as being just kind of valueless, think about I got this plugin, I gave them $100 to go develop a new one. Yeah, exactly. Or I gave them $100 to help ensure that when the next Mac operating system comes out, it'll work. Somebody's still, somebody's still in the building to, yeah. to, to update it. Yeah, ex exactly. So I proudly, and I will fly this flag until, until I'm dead, I have never in my life used a cracked plugin. Man, I am so glad that it's harder than ever to do that. I remember like 10 years ago or something, everything had cracked versions. I would show up to studios and they would be like, oh yeah, man, take this home. You know, you all, you can take it home. I'm like, I don't have that plug. And they're like, take the crack. I'm like, nope. I'm so glad that Waves cracked down on it. Did you hear about how they used to crack down on it? Sending spies? Spies? No. Yeah, they, they would send people to studios. They would book time as a client. Awesome. In, in certain towns, just for the sole purpose of getting a chance to see if they had their plugins on there. And then somehow took care of it. They did this in, from what I understand, in I towns that, like Nashville. Way. Yeah. Like they, they didn't just do it in some random places. They did it. Yeah, they went, they went after the big boys. Yeah, they went to places that were profiting off of them yeah. a ton and then just stealing their products. Yeah, I mean, I we we could have another three hour conversation on like the the whole piracy of of anything for that matter. But uh, you know, I, and I I love all the crazy rationale that you'd get. Be like, well, you know, I just you know, I don't have I don't the money. Make money off it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I really want a Ferrari, but I can't afford one. That doesn't entitle me to just to go take one. <laughs> like fuck like you gotta you know especially when there are options it's like you have pro tools it comes with free plugins and by the way it's like that plugin that you're bitching about paying 50 bucks for i paid a thousand dollars for 15 years ago when it was tdm like you should be thankful you only have to pay 50 bucks for it because i paid 1500 dollars for it it's crazy we have a rule there's Absolutely no mention of cracked plugins allowed in our community whatsoever. Good. Yeah. Good. It's it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. And and I I don't care who you are. I don't care what your reason. You can't rationalize that to me at all. Especially now when everything is so cheap. And I understand that's relative. People may be like, oh well, Chris, you're you know out there in LA in your studio. You got lots <laughs> of money to spend on plugins. But like I don't I don't care. If you don't have the money, then you don't get it. And their sales, <laughs> waves. That's why I said waves earlier. Like they're always putting things on sale. There's always a way. If you really, really can't afford things at their full price, just wait a little bit. Wait till Black Friday. Totally. Well, perfect example. The SSL bundle. So you get the the two SSL channels and the SSL G comp. When that first came out, but probably I don't even had to. 12 years ago, like whatever that came out. Like I literally, I get, I get the wave sales as well. And I think, I think it came across a couple months ago. I saw the waves, the SSL bundle come across for like 79 bucks or something. I paid $1,500 for that when it first came out. Holy shit. 1500 well spent though. A hundred percent because an SSL yeah. is $250,000, right? Or, or, you know, 1500 bucks a day at a, at a studio. Like, so I mean, absolutely well spent, but that, but again, 
I didn't bitch about the fact that it was $1,500 and then go steal it. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what's my option here? My option here is mixing on an SSL or mixing with weight, with whatever else I have. And I made the investment. So, I mean, there's, there's literally, there's no rationale that I will accept. And it's not to happen so much anymore because everybody's cracked down on it a lot. But I used to help a lot of my clients, like when we would start projects, I would update their rigs and kind of get them up to date, you know, if they don't know what they're doing and kind of help like administer their systems. If I came across cracked plugins, I'd refuse to do it. I back that. <laughs> so I'd sit down and they'd be like, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to start an album. We're going to be working together for like four months. Okay, let's make sure we're all up to date. We got all the plugins we need, whatever. And I'd go sit down at the rig. I'd start to update Pro Tools. I'd go, you know, sign into their Waves account, start updating stuff. I'd go into their plugins folder. I'd look in their plugins. There'd be a bunch of cracks. I'd be like, get somebody else to do this. Fair enough. Or get rid of them. It's so important in our industry that, uh, man, and you know what? I hate stuff like support local music and that kind of stuff because those types of sentiments because I always feel like it really means support bad music. Yeah, support good music. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> support good music. But I feel like out of purely selfish interest, even if you don't have an altruistic bone in your body, support these companies because you want music production to continue. The end. That That's why. So... It's not about support your local scene or any of that kind of bullshit. It's, do you want this thing to keep going? Yeah. Yes? Okay. Then you have to put money in. Yeah. And there's enough options that you can, it's almost like, you know, if you want to donate to a charity, there are so many options. You can pick like what you want to support and why. Like you can, and you can do that with all of these companies across the board. I have, there are companies that I just, as good, they could make the best product possible. I will not give them any more of my money because- I have other options from companies that I feel are either doing better work in terms of the quality of their product or mm -hmm. are doing better business in terms of their, you know, business customer relationship. They're my partner in all of this. Whether I have a relationship with, you know, Universal Audio or Avid or whatever, I'm saying this as I just ripped Avid a new asshole on Instagram yesterday for a their <laughs> up, for their for their bad update of Pro Tools. But I mean, ultimately, like we're partners, right? They need me, I need them. And if you don't need them, then you got other options. Well, then go support somebody who you want to support and who's going to treat you, who's going to reciprocate that. There's lots of opportunities to help push that forward. Same with bands. I mean, if you're going to go buy band t-shirts and you just want a black t-shirt with like a cool logo on it, instead of going to the surf shop and getting a whatever, why don't you go find, like, find a band that you like or you like the guys and buy that black shirt with the logo on it. Like you have options. So you know, utilize them to help support that. And I think that ultimately just kind of comes back around when, because ultimately we all, we're all in that position at some point. Yeah, it comes around when there's uh, new music or new plugins or new whatever yeah. that uh, everybody benefits from. The crazy thing with when, when piracy it was at its height and it was at a point where I'm trying to like break, I'm trying to like get into the music career, in the music industry as, as like, you mm -hmm. know, I want to do this for a living. This is my career. This is my passion. I've, I have, I've never thought of doing anything else since I was like, you know, 15, right? And so as the height of piracy is going on, I'm adamantly against it, obviously. 
but it would be almost like a, a, a nightly conversation with anybody who you're meeting for the first time, or it was the conversation at, you know, dinner, you know, on Thanksgiving or Christmas when people find you're in the music business and your, you know, your girlfriend's uncle wants to say, well, isn't the music business dying? Because, you know, well, I've never bought a CD in, in months, you know, whatever. And so the conversation would always come up. And it was, it was just crazy to hear all of the different opinions on it. And I said, well, you, you do realize that at some point, this is going to stop. Like when I say this, whatever, whatever it is that you're consuming or whatever it is that you want to see or listen to, at some point, if, if, if nothing's being put into it, it's going to stop. And you talked about, you know, you're like, yeah, I saw a lot of guys get out. Why did yeah. they get out? That's why they got out. That's exactly why they got out. And, you know... Luckily for musicians, it sucked for fans. Fans didn't realize it, but they had to subsidize their lack of record sales with ticket prices and merch prices. So the fans are still paying the same amount of money. It's just being allocated differently. You know, you're getting, you're going to a concert, you're paying quadruple what you paid for back mm -hmm. whenever, but you didn't buy three, you didn't buy two CDs from the band over the course of the year. So it's all this, you know, it probably actually works out worse for the consumer. But anyways. I would agree with you. I think it does actually. It probably does. I mean, I've never, yeah. I've never really dug into the metrics of it, but I mean, it's something that luckily for musicians and bands, touring and merch got them through the shitstorm, right? Music production guys, it did, that didn't help us at all. And that's why a lot of guys got out. That's why we've all had to kind of develop ways of figuring out how to do things more efficiently. I'll say more efficiently because that's going to mean something different to everybody, whether it means cheaper or faster or whatever, however you do it. Like, you know, I mean, it's had an effect on on everything. It's it hasn't necessarily been a good thing. Like, it definitely hurt, but people didn't realize that. They're like, oh, I get I get a CD for or I get this MP3 for free, and I'm just like, okay, cool. You like that band? You like the music? Obviously, you like it. That's why you stole it. Do you want another one? Well, it's not going to happen if that band can't fucking continue to do this because they got to go get day jobs. So I completely agree with you. I did think it was stealing. At the same time, when it was happening, in my mind. I realized there was no way back. So that's what happened is everybody's just kind of like, well, we're all in this together. So let's just jump on board, right? Yeah. Well, and streaming's great. But I remember for many years, I'd have like friends who would, and I never supported them, even though I agreed with them. I never supported them because. I felt like it would be like trying to surf a tsunami or something. They, I had friends that were trying to start movements to stop downloading and yeah. and bring sales back to music. And it's like, dude, quit wasting your time. This bell cannot be unrung. Yeah, It is what it is. This is our path. There's going to be a new technology that changes it. We're going to adapt, but uh, it's not going back to the way it was. And so just... Just stop. I I agree. They're stealing the music. Yeah. Fucking everything up. But uh, now that the physical product has been devalued and uh, there's really easy ways to consume it, it's not going to go back to the harder way of doing it. No. The, the harder, end. more expensive, more yeah. restrict. Like, yeah, no, it, it's gone completely. And ultimately, there's not enough people, you know, the, the generation that has gone past and we've gone through a couple of them now with, you know, well, I guess one and a half, but that have grown up with this media consumption you know model they don't know any different so like the thought that you know, nobody's nobody's said to them being like yeah this is how people this is they're able to do this because of this you know 
They're like, they don't care. It's never, never the thought of the person getting paid. And again, it's funny when you, when we used to have those, those arguments, they were arguments. When we used they to have those, definitely con- arguments. they were arguments. And when you used to have those conversations with people, you know, they'd be like, well, fucking, you know, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, fuck, doesn't, doesn't your boy there that you're working with, he's got a, he's got a jet. I'm like, yeah, he does have a jet. He's fine. Do you know how many people he employs? They he's don't gonna, think about that. He's going to stop <laughs> employing those people or he's going to stop paying them what he, you know, and it's like every, yeah, you know what? His fucking jet pilot's going to get laid off. <laughs> first, that's a first world problem if you've ever had one, right? Yeah. Well, I just remember, man, when Metallica took the stand oh, against brutal. it and everyone brutal. was going against them and yeah. man, Lars was right. I don't care what anybody says. Totally right. He was so right. I knew he was right at the time too. It made me very unpopular with some people because I took Metallica's side. He was just right. It was so obvious. It was so clear. Yeah. And he kept saying, it's not about us. We're rich. It's about the smaller bands and about all the people that we employ. Like that's who it's about. We're not taking this stand because of our paycheck. Like yeah, like how do you think that impacted his drum tech? Yeah, exactly. You telling me his drum tech makes the same money he made twenty years ago? Absolutely not. Well, maybe now he does, but you know, but there was a time when everybody was. Slim. I was, like I said, I was getting into the industry as that was happening. I was trying to get jobs at studios, being like, "Fuck, we're not hiring. We're not hiring a guy that that will work for free because we don't want the liability." Like, we don't want anybody in here, like, let alone getting a $5 an hour, like, runner job. Like, like it didn't matter. You're right. And, and Lars, Lars is right. It didn't matter. They were all rich. And a lot of them, although maybe aren't making as much money as they did in the heyday, are still okay. They're at the very, very, very top, and they're the, they're the least amount of people that, that benefit from, I don't know, you take any other industry and you pull out the revenue and it collapses. So like, I, I don't understand where people look at this and be like, oh, we can pull out all the revenue and everything's going to be fine. Because people who weren't in it didn't stop to think about what goes into making yeah. it. Yeah, simple as that. Yeah. I hope I'm not coming across as fucking Lars right now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Sorry, Lars. No, but but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I'm pro streaming, by the way. And I'm going to have to end this now, but I'll, I'll just say that I think that um, we have entered, we're at the very beginning of a golden age for music. I think that COVID-19 aside, the next 10 years, in my opinion... I could be wrong, are going to be very good for the music industry and very lucrative for artists in a way that it hasn't been since, who knows, yeah. 20 years ago. Or maybe ever. Yeah, maybe ever. Because, yeah, because we're going to, we're going to, we've got avenues to, to basically kind of keep control over it now. So we can, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's awesome. I agree. But, uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, dude, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Very cool. Thank you. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.